ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Hagman Report. It is Tuesday, June 12th, 2018. I'm leaning into the microphone. I actually moved the microphone. I'm sorry. I apologize for for that appearance here. I have to move my chair and move the microphone. Um, welcome to the show today. Um, the Hagman Report, of course. Doug and Joe Hagman, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. Um, I want to start off the show. I want to let you know we got a great show planned, a great show lined up for you today. Uh, the second hour. Oh my goodness. A guy that I have been, I've been reading, watching, following. Joe and I have been, uh, really, uh, we, we think a lot of him. Uh, Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch. So, I just want to let everyone know. Alright. Go ahead and email care, Nihad Awad. Let him, let them know, and Right Wing Watch, let them know that Robert Spencer is going to be on. It's going to happen anyway. We're ready for it. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch is going to be on. It's going to be a fantastic segment, and of course, followed by Stan Dale. But uh, and uh, yeah, uh, he has a new book that we're going to be talking about. Spencer does. Yes, he does. As a matter of fact, you need to read the book. In fact, is it out yet? Or I don't know. Is it publicly made available? That's no, we're going to have to ask him. We're going to have to ask him when he comes on. All right, but Jihad Watch. Is, uh, Robert Spencer's organization. Like I said, make sure, just make sure that your friends, the people who are listening and transcribing the show, make sure that CARE's tuned in. CARE, of course, the unindicted co-conspirator of the Holy Land Foundation trial. We want to make sure that we remind people of that. But, uh, I want to thank all of, all of the people who are hanging with us and, uh, supporting us and, and are part of a program. You know, I had some time here in the last, well, in the last week or so, to really take inventory, to take stock of, of what we are doing. And uh, collectively, individually here, John, Eric, Jackie, Joe, myself. And, uh, you know, sometimes the question becomes, are we making a difference? And I know that almost sounds a little bit self-serving in a way. Are we making a difference? You might say, well, geez. Yeah, of course you are. You know, sometimes you wonder if you're talking to the choir. Sometimes you're wondering if, if what we're saying is getting, is resonating with others. Sometimes you, you know, it, it's, it's just, you just don't know sometimes if we collectively are making a difference. We in the alternative media are making a difference. And, and I've been seeing things, and I've got to, I, I've got to acknowledge one more time again. Acknowledge citizen researchers and journalists. As, as I, as I look at the landscape of this, of this interesting dynamic of the, of, of the internet, I, I want to acknowledge citizen res, uh, researchers and citizen journalists, for example, I'd, I'd like to include us in that category, the op-ed 
editorialized news analysis. But then you've got people, again, Tracy Beans, for example, incredible investigation, investigative, investigative uh, uh, results. The way she looks at various, uh, it takes apart, dissects various things. Honeybee, Melissa Zacharia, Kids Inc., the documentary that she's filming and putting together along with with Anthony and, and Heather. It, it's amazing the, the quality. Ten years ago, you would not see this. Fifteen, twenty years ago, it would be unheard of. Um, as a matter of fact, there was an episode. Now, don't yell at me. Married with Children. You remember that show, very objectionable show on Fox. And one of the episodes was when the Bundys, the characters there, bought a computer. Al Bundy bought a computer. And it was like 30 or, I don't know, to, to three grand. And they described it as they were bringing it in the door. Seven megabyte of RAM, or 40 megabyte of RAM, seven or 3200 uh, baud modem, um, VGA monitor, uh, seven megabyte of RAM. You know, it's the, it's a workhorse of computers. And you look back at something like that. You look at what we know what's going on today. Look how far we've come in just a short period of time. And I'm talking within the last couple of decades. Now, overlap that with the citizen. Well, why did I mention that? Well, look at the quality of work being done, being performed by citizens journalists, citizen journalists. Again, Tracy Beans, Melissa Zachariah, the, the honeybee. And then look at what Jason Goodman found on Crowdsource the Truth. And Luke Rosiak's been working on the story as well. But um, uh, Crowdsource of the Truth, Jason Goodman, finds Imran Awan working for the very law firm that um, is defending, defended the Clintons, or is defending him as well in his criminal suit as a receptionist. I have the paper right here. And, of course, I've got numerous pages here. But... Uh, but, th- but think about that. H- how weird is that? Now, you don't see CBS, NBC, ABC covering that, nor would you expect them to cover that. But look at, for example, the, the quality of the, of the investigative work product of Jason Goodman, of Crowdsource of the Truth, finding this out. Approaching, actually doing a 60 minutes kind of approach, going to the door, get, getting an attorney to answer the door, it's a marvelous piece of video. And it adds to the timeline and bits and pieces of information as to what we're seeing. So we owe, we owe these people a debt of gratitude for informing us of, of really what the media should be informing us. But they're not. Infowars, blazing the, 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 the regardless of what you think of the personalities, and we've got to put the personalities aside. You've got to put the egos aside. Look at the investigative work product. Look at the final product. Look at the trails blazed by, for example, Alex Jones and Infowars. I marvel at that. He's been in the trenches for a couple of decades. Steve Quayle. Ted Brower coming out of retirement to address various issues. Peter Chalka been in this 50 years. 
we're all, so to answer my question, I suppose, we are making a difference. You're making a difference. You're making a difference because you're taking this information, whether it's a thread, and you know how much I hate Twitter threads, right? But, but <laughs> I do. It's a, it, write an article. Not Tracy, but you know, she can get away with it. But, um, an, an article is easier to read. But, but you're taking this information and you, and you're forwarding to this to people and, and red pilling people yourselves. How great is that? And we are winning the information war. So I want to congratulate all of the people out there who are actively doing this. Captain Roy D. We've had him on the program. Captain Roy D. from Reddit. Look at his research. Sundance from Conservative Treehouse. The Gateway Pundit, Jim, Jim and Joe Hoff, who John's been able to get on our program. My goodness. Josh Kaplan. Look at what he's doing. I could go on and on, and I don't mean to leave anyone out, but when you look at this in the collective, it should bring a smile to your face. It should, it should make you feel, yeah, we're actually doing something. And it's just not for us. We're actually doing this for our children. Because the, where we're at today, man, I'll tell you something. We need a lot. We, we need to do a lot more. Now, it's my understanding in two days, I thought it was going to be yesterday, but in two days the OIG report will come out. This is what we're expecting. It's either going to be a thud or a bang or somewhere in between. I don't know. But it's going to be our responsibility to go through the IG report to look at what's, what's, what's there. And of course you can, you can tune into Fox News and you can, you can, uh, you can see what their predictions are, or if it's going to be underwhelming, overwhelming, or if it's just going to be whelming. <laughs> but the, but the fact is, we are, we're moving the, the ball downfield. Coach Dave Dobmeyer, America's coach. God bless that man. Boots on the ground. And I often say this. I, I, I please stay with me. This is cathartic for me. Uh, boots on the ground, helping others, going to Texas. You don't see, the detractors. You don't see people from right wing watch. At least I don't. Maybe, hey, correct me if I'm wrong. But you don't see them out there dishing out food, serving people, handing out Bibles, handing out uh, building houses, rebuilding houses in, in hurricane ravaged areas of the United States. You don't see anyone else or very few standing up for family rights for family values coach Dave Dobmeyer boots on the ground Russ Dizdar ride with him for a day that'll that'll curl your toes let me tell you where he goes um, people like that so we are making a difference collectively and the reason I said that the reason I, I laid this foundation and, and again if I left anyone out I don't mean to because there are so many great people who are, who are with us, who are beside us, you're part of it. If you're tuned into this program, whether it's audio or video, you're part of this. And we have to stand together. And it makes me happy to think that, yeah, you know what? We are part of this. We are part of, of fighting the, the battle against the, 
the, the democratic socialists who want to turn this country into a communist utopia in the larger sense. And, the, and then in the smaller sense, if you would call it that, attempting to take down a, a president, take down the nation, to reverse the vote, to, to redo the 2016 election, even today, through the Mueller probe and, and what have you. The reason I laid all this foundation down is because there, there's there's the, the, the blacker side to this. Where there is progress, there will be hatred. Where there is forward advancement, there will be blowback. And where there is some truth, sadly, there will be infused in that bits of disinformation. I said all that to say this. We had a situation, and we still do have a situation. We know, you know, we know, having investigated Pedogate and Pizzagate. Pizzagate is real. It's just not real in the sense that the mainstream media, the captured corporate mass media, the mockingbird media, the the yellow journalism media. It's just not real in the fashion that they are explaining it to you. They want you to believe it's a single pizza shop by a single guy in a Washington and it's a victim and real uh, you know talking about it has real world real real world consequences and and how do I know this? I'll just go to go to be personal here. I know this because I read it in court documents. Well, what court documents, you might ask? The ones that are being served on me. I don't, I, this is not about me. This is about all of us. I brought this up to, to say that uh, Pizzagate's real, Pettigate's real. And there are people out there who are trying to make a difference. There are, in my view, there are three types of people that are out there attempting to make a difference. There are people out there who are attempting to make a difference for the sake of the children and the sake of the victims without regard to their own personal welfare. And they will speak the truth as they see it and as they find it with capable personnel, with trained personnel who know exactly what they're looking at. Look, I, I could not perform a surgery. I could, I, I'm not a doctor. I couldn't perform surgery on somebody. So if someone opened up, um, and I remember this, uh, as odd as this sounds, a year ago my wife underwent emergency surgery, and I was shown pictures of her internal organs. Thank God for doctors. I'm looking at that. I'm thinking, I, I mean, I know what I'm looking at, sort of, kind of, but not really. They do that now, which I found really interesting, if you want to see it. But sometimes there are, you know, you look at something and you're not sure what you're looking at. So I'm not an expert, I'm not a doctor. But I know a crime scene when I see it. And so does Craig Sawyer. And here's why I mentioned all this. There are people out there who are well-intentioned. I started saying about three different kinds of people. People, of course, that are well-intentioned, that uh, that know what they're doing, and they, they have the experience and resources and the intent for the children and for the victims and willing to, to take on the perpetrators. you got that group. Then you got a second group, 
well-intentioned, but not quite up to speed on things. Well-intentioned, nonetheless, but not, you know, not necessarily equipped. I might be well-intended to, to set a fracture, speaking of being a doctor, but if I do it wrong, I could cause more damage than not. And then you got a third group, in my view, and that's the people who are struggling for relevance, struggling for attention, who know there's a problem and either are a part of the problem or capitalizing or exploiting on the problem for their own personal gain. That's kind of my my really rudimentary assessment of things. Recently, I'm sure you've heard, and I spoke yesterday about this, of the South Tucson uh, so-called sex camp or sex encampment, whatever you want to call it, this location. And yesterday, at the opening of the program, I described the timeline. I went through the timeline. May 29th, 8.58, Tucson police called. Vets on patrol found this location. They contacted a, a, a second a second party who contacted Craig Sawyer, uh, Vets for Child Rescue. They came down, they they looked at it. And, of course, you're going to see videos out there of the initial of Craig Sawyer initially saying, okay, this looks suspicious, and that's inhumane, you know. Okay, that's it is what it is, the initial assessment. It would be like me looking at a crime scene saying, okay, yeah, okay, it looks like this happened here. It's subject to change with additional investigation. You're looking at something and, and you say, I've seen this before. I've seen this before in Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, in Africa where they've got the rat lines of child trafficking or human sex trafficking or human trafficking. So understand that there are videos out there that, um, give you, of, of, of Craig Sawyer his initial reaction of this South Tucson camp. And the reason I bring this up is because, I'll get to that in a second, the actual reason. After additional investigation of this one specific area, it it obviously, we have found, and I say we because I became involved in this as well, speaking with a lieutenant, and I'm not going to give his name, from Tucson, one of the 20-plus uh, police officers who responded to this location, speaking at length with Craig Sawyer, knowing Craig Sawyer. Joe and I had meetings with Craig Sawyer. We met him in person. We understand what his organization is all about. We understand what he's doing, what they're doing. We understand the difference that they're they're making. We understand the fact that they've gone in and made arrests, that they've done surveillance. It's one thing to to look at something and, and to say, okay, we're going in and, you know, like a bull in a china shop, like I mentioned yesterday. And what a lot of times what you end up doing is you end up compromising either an investigation, compromising the ability to begin a surveillance and investigation, or compromise the evidence at the site. Now, you may look at it if it's whatever you may look at it in your initial okay your initial uh, assessment of it being recorded that's subject to change believe it or not that's because when I and I've gone through this in, in both field work and in class work you know you're presented with a specific scene you look at it and you say okay this is what it looks like and then upon further inspection and investigation okay wait a second okay now 
considering in, in the context of everything? Okay. This is my final analysis. Well, here's what's happening right now, and I just want to put an end to this. Vets for Child Rescue, it's, it's, and I have not been asked to say this. I have not. This is all me. So if, if anyone has got a problem, it's all Doug Hagman. You can send your nasty emails to me and, and such. But after looking at the situation in South Tucson, it, it's my particular view that that was mishandled from day one. I think that uh, Craig Sawyer was was thrown into a situation that that perhaps he, you know, after further analysis, he, he said, "Wait a minute, things aren't adding up here." That's uh, pretty much what I believe, and it's unfortunate to me because you've got a number of people on social networking who are accusing. Craig Sawyer and Vets for Child Rescue of covering something up, when in fact that's the furthest thing from the truth. I just want to lay this out and lay this out. The last time I'm going to talk about this, unless there's something new about this. The situation in South Tucson. Craig Sawyer was called in. He looked at it. He spoke with the police. Yeah, there are some problems with the with, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, it, it could have been at one point used for something nefarious, certainly after the initial finding and trampling and um, everything you know of the of the site. Certainly not anymore. Prior to Mr. Sawyer, Sawyer's arrival, the uh, possibility for conducting any covert operational surveillance had been long gone, long destroyed. Again, well-intentioned or not, I'm not blaming anyone. Just telling you the facts. But where the problem exists right now, in my view, is you've got people on social networking, people with YouTube channels, who have never spoken to Craig Sawyer, who've never spoken to the investigative officers of the Tucson Police Department, who have never spoken to the principals involved in this, who are shooting their mouths off, and they're dragging through dragging through the mud that's for child rescue Craig Sawyer saying that he's part of the problem he's trying to cover things up when in fact that's not that's not true and as I look at this remember the compliment I said to, to all of all of you citizen journalists and researchers out there you do a great job but when faced with something like this please understand there are there are a number of issues that you're you I know you don't know I know you don't know because I didn't know them until I knew them and it takes a while to dig and I want to I want to give a special thank you to Melissa honeybee but there are some problems there what this does by these these accusations and dragging Craig through the mud and that's for child rescue through the mud and saying that he's part of the problem covering things up when it's the furthest thing from the truth what that does is cause unnecessary division now you might not like me saying this or spend so much time on this but I think it's important because the only thing we've got right now is each other to depend on to rely upon we don't need we don't need egos. We don't need people looking for fame. We don't need people looking for FaceTime and a camera. We don't need we don't need keyboard warriors. We need people out there like Coach Dave Dobmar and like Craig Sawyer 
to go out there and to really hit it hard. Craig Sawyer is making a difference. I wish I could tell you what I know now with Vets for Child Rescue. I can't because I would compromise ongoing investigations. But he's a real deal, and I ask that you trust me enough to understand what I'm saying. So if you look at a Facebook post or a Twitter post or a social networking post that contains accusations that, that that's, you know, Craig Sawyer or Vets for Child Rescue are covering things up, that's the furthest thing from the truth. They are one stand-up organization that I would put, I would bet everything I own. I mean, I would put everything I own to back that organization. And I feel bad that people have really taken and really besmirched the name of Craig Sawyer and Vets for Child Rescue. And I ask that you take a look at this and take a look inside your heart and, and, and ask yourself, do you really know what you think you know? Because I don't think you do. Because if you did, you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be doing that. And again, no one told me to, to, I was, no one said to do this, but I see it hurting the movement. I see it hurting other independent journalists speaking about something you don't know what, what, what you're, what you're talking about. So I'm asking plainly for unity. I'm asking for all of us to work together. I'm asking for all of us to leave our egos at the door and leave our, if you don't know for sure, don't think you know what you what you think you know. I mean, th- don't go with what you think you know. Verify it. That's for child rescue is unnecessarily being being drugged through the mud. That's not that's not okay with me. Craig Sawyer's being drugged through the mud. That's not okay with me because that's hurting an organization. That's an A plus organization that's doing more good than any one organization I've seen ever do for the victims of child sex trafficking and bringing down the perpetrators. Folks, that's from the heart, not scripted. And I just wanted to make that my opening statement. And I thank you for listening. And to all the citizen investigative journalists out there, thank you for what you do. Thank you for being on our team. And thank you for allowing us to be on your team. Very well said. When we come back, we are going to cover some news, uh, some of the response to the Trump-North Korea summit, the media response, as well as others. And we're going to talk about what this means moving forward, if anything, here on this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Back to this edition of the Hagman Report on this Tuesday, June 12th, 2018. So last night we saw President Trump meet with the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, in a historic meeting, but what did it accomplish? Well, it accomplished the first steps toward diplomacy, toward, uh, you know, I guess, a peace process, a denuclearization, 
but we see a lot of mixed responses in the media today. You have uh, a commentator on MSNBC from Joe Scarborough saying, just because it's the first time something happened doesn't make it historic. And then you have people like Ben Shapiro on Twitter who is saying things like, well, would it have, uh, Kim is Hitlerian. Would we have sat down with Hitler? And uh, people are really, it seems that the left is really upset. It doesn't matter what Trump does. We know that he's never going to get credit. But this is what Ben Shapiro tweeted. Imagine that Kim is Hitler here. And try not to let your stomach churn at the triumphal music being playing beneath these images because Kim is Hitlerian. And I don't know what uh, Shapiro is advocating for, uh, you know, if he thinks that the uh, we should just go to war or what. But there seems to be a lot of disconnect in the uh, on the left and the media on the left with this whole meeting. Now, one of the big things about this that's not being addressed is the human rights abuses that North Korea inflicts on its people. And obviously, you know, it's going to be a long process, one step at a time. Uh, but this is something that's going to have to be addressed in the, in the future. But I don't know how you can... Uh, you know, many people compare this to uh, the Iran deal with Obama and uh, saying that, well, don't trust President Trump. You know, he made he sat down with you. Two hours later, he could he could change his mind and go the other way, just like he did with the Iran deal which this were, was two, obviously, separate things. But all in all, uh, regardless of Jim Acosta screaming at Kim Jong-un and President Trump as they uh, were walking, uh, screaming if they were asking if he was going to denuclearize, asking President Trump how it was going, uh, one of the other takeaways from this meeting was an interview Chris Cuomo did with Dennis Rodman. Now, many people think that Dennis Rodman was interviewed to try to... Uh, to make this appear less legitimate, legitimate to make it seem like more of a circus than an actual uh, movement of diplomacy. And that backfired in CNN's face as Dennis Rodman got real emotional and started crying, talking about how he attempted to uh, establish this peace process with North Korea under the Obama administration and was brushed aside, how he received death threats uh, to the point where he could not even go home for periods of time of over 30 days because of his traveling to North Korea. And he came on CNN, interviewed by Chris Cuomo. I would urge everybody to to watch that interview if you can. And he's wearing a Make America Great Again hat, which Cuomo asks, you know, what what's that hat you're wearing? Like he doesn't know. And uh, you know, Dennis Rodman just kind of lets loose, and it turned out to be a really good interview. And... Uh, he got very emotional, but it just shows you, uh, in the comment section, you know, I follow these things and, and on YouTube's, on CNN's YouTube channel, you don't see the kind of comments like you do under this Dennis Rodman piece. Uh, and I'm just starting to wonder is that the majority of the country sees this as a positive thing. It's only, you know, the, the knee jerk, uh, you know, communists out there who are, are trying to make this into something that it's not. But what Judge Napolitano said, I think, was, is key. Anything that the, the President and Kim signed yesterday is, is a non-binding, it's not a treaty, it's not, you know, legislation, uh, it's not really standing, but he did say this is the beginning, uh, process of, you know, getting to this point where you can end the North Korean armistice, where you can, uh, you know, make agreements to denuclearize. And these are the beginning steps of what a treaty, 
uh, might someday look like. And uh, either way, I think it's a it's a very historic moment for the United States, and the media is largely ignored by the American public and is seen for the joke that they are. But all in all, a very a very positive thing here, I guess. But the real issue, the North think, Korean human rights abuses. Uh, what do you think the American people in general? I'm not talking about the, you know, um, the, the uh, snowflake people. But uh, what do you think the majority of the American people or the bulk of the American people think about this? I'm just curious as well, to okay. what you believe. Based six on, months ago, we were, I haven't really read the comments. Six months ago, we were looking at, uh, you know, Kim Jong Un threatening to launch missiles at Guam and Hawaii and Alaska, um, launching missiles over Japan, and the threat of war was really front and center. Remember the the people who have the doomsday clock were, were moving the, the minutes closer to midnight right. based on this whole situation, and now it seems that the tension is gone. It seems like uh, both sides are willing to do a few things to, to make this relationship work. One example of that is, uh, President Trump saying he would uh, end the military exercises off the uh, coast of South Korea, which took many by surprise, but showing that the U.S. is willing to, to you know, make efforts to make this work. I think the American people uh, are very pleased that this is not another war, and not, not another undeclared war, and that this has not turned into some, you know, international fiasco or conflict, and that it can be resolved. I, I think the, the face-to-face aspect, I think, improves... The chances of, of, of a peaceful resolution as opposed to not meeting face to face. Right, That's absolutely. All, you know. And when you see headlines like this, I do trust him. Many people are, are blasting the president saying, Oh, how can you trust this murderer, this dictator? I, I understand why Trump says the things. He's trying to build a relationship. He's trying to build rapport with, with this man. I don't believe he actually trusts him. No, I don't either. But he is taking those steps to, uh, to make it seem as such, to make him feel comfortable. And what will be interesting to see is, I, I said this earlier on The Daily Show, from the administration, what people inside the Trump administration are we going to see trying to sabotage this? Kind of like what we saw Bolton and Giuliani do, whether knowingly or unknowingly, before the summit, who's going to be the one to you know come out and say something uh, like John Bolton said before the summit? Well, we're going to go with the Libyan model uh, <laughs> of peace in, in North Korea. That's what my eyes are really on. Not what so much the media says, but it's a it's a win. And I think uh, well, the the two big takeaways for me today was Rodman. One was Rodman, Dennis Rodman, saying how basically this could have been Obama's legacy. This could have been an accomplishment of the Obama administration. And not only did he not take it seriously, he brushed uh, Dennis Rodman aside and didn't even listen to him. But this so how many administrations could it have been? I mean, you're talking. Uh, Bush as well. You're talking both Bushes with, with, you know, the, yeah. the previous uh, leader leadership of of North Korea. But yeah, you're you're right. Uh, I didn't didn't mean to interrupt you, but oh, it, one one announcement. I just want to say this. My apologies. My morning show is not there. I had technical issues this morning. I should have put something up on the on the uh, website. I apologize. The Doug Hagman radio show doesn't exist for this morning. Um, interestingly, it's hard recorded, but not. But that's it. So, um, I apologize. So go on. We've both been having yeah some problems here and there. We had issues on Friday uh, recording, and we weren't we recorded a show, but weren't able to get it up. But uh, well, yeah, we're continue. Yeah, I. Yeah, so uh, yeah, continue, folks. Thank you for your support and 
continuing to support us. We are making improvements. But, yeah, Joe, I, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but when you mentioned the Daily well, Show, I, I forgot, and I wanted to make sure people knew. I don't know what else there is to say on the uh, on the, the North Korean issue. I mean, it's a, as, again, it's a complete 180 from what we have seen six, you know, just six months ago when you had the president tweeting about fire, bringing fire and fury to North Korea, where you had uh, Kim Jong-un launching missiles over the island of Japan. And here we are uh, with both countries at the table willing to uh, work out whatever conflicts there are to have a, a stable peace process. Now, what happens after this? Who knows? Uh, anything and everything can happen. It could fall. Uh, it could completely fall apart, and we could go back to where we were six months ago. We could actually see, uh, as I said before, a movement towards uh, a more uh, recognized, legally recognized solution here. And either way, we, we don't know what that holds, but, uh, sure enough, you know, uh, the president putting another notch in his belt, another accomplishment, another win, at least for the time being, and keeping up with, uh, promises that he said he would, he would keep up with. But again, the media is going to be the media. The left is going to be the left detached from reality with the Trump derangement syndrome. And I heard Sebastian Gorka on the way into the studio on Sean Hannity. And he did a really good job explaining the the Trump derangement syndrome that we see in the news today and how hypocritical they are and, and the double standards. And we point those out every day, so we don't have to go into that today. But the, the second thing, uh, as I said, the first thing was, was Dennis Rodman and, and his involvement and reaction to this. The second thing, as I said earlier, was Jim Acosta. And it appears that Jim Acosta's, uh, you know, grandstanding and, and egomania is not uh, just for the White House press press briefing in, in the White House lawn, this apparently extends no, no matter where he goes. I mean, what kind of an embarrassment would go to this meeting and start yelling from the, the press, the galley of people who are there uh, in the press and, and start screaming at these people? I don't even think Kim Jong-un speaks English, and, and Jim Acosta is sitting there yelling at him asking him questions as he's walking and, and speaking privately with the president. Very disrespectful, and I think the, uh, the the world media, anybody who saw that, is really laughing at Jim Acosta, but it just shows uh, his true colors. And, again, I mean, what what can you say negative about what, hap- what uh, the president has been able to do with North Korea? Uh, you can go to newsbusters.org or, or Real Clear Politics for and examples of that. Now, uh, I guess on to other news. There are some interesting comments that Lindsey no, Graham be, made. Before you go past that, just notice the lack of civility. That, that, well, yeah. And the mean, lack of respect. Can you imagine, though, Joe, can you imagine uh, Obama being treated by no. the, the press and the, the fashion that President Donald J. Trump is being treated? I, I they would have removed him from the, the press corps. R- they would have right. removed anybody who who made issues or problems like that or... or Put the administration in an embarrassing position or, you know, didn't look, whatever it was, uh, they would have changed the personnel. But, you know, what does CNN do? They double down, they, they, they make him the White House correspondent, you know, the main White House correspondent in affairs, both domestic and international. And, yeah. And I, I just want to, <laughs> just want to myself double down here because what we're seeing is you're seeing what once was a very respectful, um, environment where you wouldn't you wouldn't shout at the president you wouldn't shout at the president's press secretary 
the press has lost the respect. Uh, they have no respect for the office. They have no respect for the institution. They have contempt for the institution as well as the person. And I think that that's gone on the, the social media. And have you noticed the more contempt, the, the more democratic socialist contempt that's, that's shown, for example, on Twitter, that's permitted. But the, the contempt against uh, abortion, for example, or infanticide, that's not tolerated. The contempt for the contempt against biblical uh, marriage and, and uh, Christian marriage, uh, nuclear family—that's okay on social media. But the contempt for the perversions of the same won't be tolerated. And it's the very people who talk about the intolerance of the right are the purveyors of the intolerance of the democratic socialists and I just find that whether it's the press corps the fake news or the person sitting across from you maybe at the Thanksgiving dinner or the barbecue table um, you know that's a Hillary supporter Sanders supporter or just a plain leftist ideologue the decorum is gone as the rules Mm -hmm. have gone so I wanted to throw that in there no and that's, that's very true Looking for this article I had up earlier about an interview with Lindsey Graham talking about Rod Rosenstein's time at the Department of Justice being over. And I can't, okay, here it is. Um, Senator Lindsey Graham hints Rosenstein has come to the end of his tenure. Um, and what's going on with, with Andrew McCabe? I, I don't know if you saw this. And we're going to come back to Rosenstein. Lawyer for ex-FBI Deputy Director McCabe sues government over his firing. A lawyer for fired former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is suing the FBI and the Justice Department and its Inspector General for refusing to turn over documents related to McCabe's termination. As you all know, the uh, IG report is coming out on the 14th Thursday, and it is expected to be uh, a 500-page report on the handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation during the 2016 presidential election. Now, I want to ask you, some people are... Uh, upset that the whole report wasn't going to come out, that it was just the the part pertaining to the 2016 uh, election and the Hillary well, Clinton email yeah, scandals. We but knew this. don't we need to handle one issue at a time? Won't it be better for it to come out in pieces like this so the media won't be able to gloss over the Hillary Clinton, the handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation? It's interesting. Just for the Trump yeah. Russia uh, stuff? Uh, it's interesting you ask that question because think back, um, it's some of the more complex investigations that that Hagman Investigative Services did has done, and the reports that are issued. It's it's easy to get lost in a um, thousand page report, especially when you've got complexities. It's easy to get lost in a hundred page report. Right, right. Now, on the other hand, okay, you've got overlapping sections. For example, maybe within the first five hundred pages there'll be a footnote or a reference to something that's not included within that within the I don't know but to me I think it's important uh the more transparent I think what's more important than that is the transparency yes we've got an issue where they're segmenting the investigations however the investigations overlap um I I'm, I wonder how much is going to be redacted how I wonder how much is going to be changed I've never seen and and I'm not familiar with this before but I've never seen the uh, an inspector general, of course I've never seen an inspector general's report of this type anyway. You, you've got the audits 
but not a special investigation. But where, and, and, and hey, help me, correct me if I'm wrong, where the IG's office gives it to the gives it to the FBI DOJ for their review and comments. You know, mm-hmm. so, so the very subject right. of the investigation has got input, whether or not that input has any merit. So to me, that that just blows my mind because, you know, uh, thinking in a law and order type of capacity, you right. bring you bring someone in and and assess charges against someone. You don't hand the the charging document to the person saying, "Do you agree with this?" Of well, it's, it's not even this. it's not even just the agency that's under the scope of the investigation. It's the same personnel uh, in yeah. the agency yeah. who are being accused of these things that are having influence on the contents and and what's in the report. And that's just crazy to me. The fact that Peter Strauch still works at the FBI is crazy to me. And we see that. I think that's some of that's necessary because to me that now you know as much as I do. Okay. So you feel free to disagree. But I think in cases of like Strauch and people still there, I think that they've, I think the IG and Huber has got those people. Under an administrative, uh, uh, administratively, where were they? One would hope. Uh, well, yeah, you know, for example, okay, you want your pension. You got more to worry about than your pension. However, if you want your pension, you sit down here, you shut up, and, and you cooperate until we need you. Um, you, you know, work the mailroom, but you, you we'll let you stay here to accrue time for your pension. Uh, but you're going to cooperate, and and I think I think the people who are still there. Are of use to the investigation. That's my. But do you have a, a different feeling about that? I don't know. Uh, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. I, I, I don't know. You know, all that we do know, there's a lot we still don't know, and, and there's a lot going on behind the scenes that is not going to be in the report. Um, there's a lot of other things going on that we just don't have all the details or information on. So, but, but you, I think what you pointed out, though, and, and I guess to. to but some people are upset that it's, it's going to be segmented. It's very it narrowed. It, so, so just to be clear, it's your understanding, and I think it's my understanding, that this is going to be basically the uh, the 2016 election, the the conduct of the FBI and the DOJ right. with respect to the Hillary Clinton uh, email and the alleged hacking, if you will. And we know criminal referrals are coming with right. this report too. So, and and that's why I brought up McCabe suing the FBI, suing the DOJ. I don't know if this is a, a pre-trial, uh, pre-criminal defense move where he knows he's going to be charged and he's trying to, to, to muddy the waters or, or make it seem as though well, he's been wrong. What's the news with his immunity? Because he's asked for Yeah, he has immunity. asked for immunity. I don't know. That's not that's not uh, uh, mentioned in here, at least from what I've seen. They, they say how McCabe and his family have been stripped of their health care benefits and his delayed ability to collect a federal pension. Didn't, don't, don't remember somebody, wasn't there a, a GoFundMe page that had raised <laughs> yeah, hundreds of thousands yeah, of dollars? dollars? Yeah. Anyway, so it goes on to say that those requests have been denied by some of the same high-ranking officials who were involved in or responsible for the investigation or dismissal of Mr. McCabe, the complaint says. So basically they're claiming that there's a conspiracy against McCabe in the FBI, in the DOJ, that's uh, disallowing him to, to claim benefits that are rightfully his. And Again, is this some kind of, and I forgot, I, I completely forgot about the, uh, attempted, uh, immunity deal that was, see, I don't know what's real and what's not. See, we see all these claims being tossed out by anonymous sources and unnamed, uh, aides and officials 
no, I think know, Sarah Carter like this. I think Sarah Carter and and, and uh, uh, was was Catherine Harridge perhaps and Sarah Carter. So I think I think the the sources are good on the on the up or the uh, the application for immunity by McCabe. I believe that to be the case. I could be wrong, but w- 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 at that level, okay. So if the, think of it this way: you, you're you're the top, basically the top level uh, at the FBI, and the IG reporter is over here, it's, you know, kind of looming, and you're asking for criminal immunity. Then you turn around and and file civil suit, yeah, as you as you mentioned, okay, while you're still on, you know, under right. possible criminal uh, prosecution. And McCabe says uh, this: McCabe has denied any intentional. This isn't important. Any intentional wrongdoing. Instead, he said any lapses in his memory or mistakes in his interviews with the Inspector General and others were just mistakes derived from the chaos inside the FBI because it was under siege from President Trump and his allies. Well, uh, Michael so Trump's Trump fault. Something to say that, about that. Yeah, that it's Trump's fault that he misled investigators. It's Trump's fault that he, uh, what was the other one? Acted, uh, what was, what was the, the terminology of With that? intent, you mean? Or acted, uh, no, it, it was a, it was a phrase that they used. Uh, what are you referring to? Again? To uh, the accusations against McCabe. Uh, he lacked candor. Oh, of course. That's, that's In other words, say. he lied his butt off. Right. Now, Paul Sperry, just to be clear, Paul Sperry, journalist Paul Sperry, uh, did tweet out on June 7th, Senate investigators suspect General Flynn's 302s were edited by McCabe, referred matter to Inspector mm-hmm. General Horowitz. And perhaps this has something to do with the request for immunity and such. But nonetheless, um, a very interesting uh, position McCabe is, is in right now. And I think, so let me ask you, okay, given the fight, what do you expect from the IG's report? Well, it's going to be a 500-page report on the DOJ and FBI handling of the investigation with what you pointed out, that this has been you know given back to the DOJ for comment for... Uh, uh, insight, the, the fact that some of it could be redacted and, and we don't have all the information. Um, I don't know. I, I think you're going to have a few sacrificial lambs, but overall, I think they're going to, to justify and, and, uh, you know, basically say, uh, these people, these few people committed crimes, these other people made mistakes, and what's done is done, and, uh, let's move on. I think that's a, probably what we're going to get out of it. Hopefully I'm wrong. Well, and we must remember, I believe this to be the case, we, we must remember, think back to the uh, to that infamous Susan Rice email on Inauguration Day that uh, Obama, Comey, everyone did everything by the book. Remember that. And and, and so, so to, looking backwards in time, I think that Obama was, I believe fully that Obama was behind Spygate, that Brennan, Clapper, Comey, we're all complicit. As a matter of fact, we're co-conspirators in, in what is known as Obamagate. What I would call this is Obamagate. And to to what you said, yeah, I think people at the lower level are going to be sacrificial lambs, or they're going to okay, we'll give you we'll give you one McCabe, uh, but we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep Obama, Valerie Jarrett, and uh, hands off of Hillary. So. We'll trade you one one uh, Andrew McCabe for two Hillary Clintons, yeah. you know, kind of thing. That's kind of what I think is going to play out. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, it's been delayed twice 
Uh, twice no, now, longer. Three times now. Oh, my goodness. It was, it was supposed to come out last Thanksgiving for crying out loud. Well, I know. Okay. So it just the, the most recent delay since yeah. the fifth. It's yeah. been delayed twice since the fifth and it's scheduled to come out on the 14th. So hopefully there will be no more delays. I can't see reasons for any more delays. The drafts have already been, uh, handed out to people internally and you already see it leaks coming from, uh, small pieces of information coming from the report. And that's another question. Are we going to see any leaks in the next 24 hours that are going to try to uh, be damage control for the report dropping? Dan Bongino had, I don't know how many people listen to Dan Bongino, but he had an excellent show, I think it was yesterday, talking about these leaks. And I do believe when you look at the timing of some of these leaks, I think they were intentional. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I did not see the, I watched the old Miami Vice series. I did not see the Miami Vice movie. Apparently there was a... um there was a scene in there where a uh, drug deal going down and uh, one of the two crocodile tubs said, well, we're going to give, you know, this state to the DEA, this state to the FBI, this state to whoever. And whoever came back with the information, we know who the leaker is. And I think that's, I think that's what happened here in a couple of different cases. I hope so. I hope so. But it seems that these, uh, the leaks ever since President Trump took office, uh, none of them have been resolved. We've heard Jeff Sessions say, uh, there are multiple, uh, multiple dozens of, of investigations into leaks of classified information, yet we don't see any, uh, I, I think there's one case where a former official on a, in the Obama administration that was a, a holdover, a carryover, is being charged with leaking. But other than that, uh, we haven't seen any action or any, at least prosecutions or charges in these multiple leaker cases. I think Jeff Sessions a few months ago said there was what, 23, 29? I think 20, 27 cases. cases. 27? And, and by the way, James Wolf, charged with, you know, 1001, violations of, of 1001 USC, uh, the equivalent of jaywalking, but not charged with actual leaking of the document, charged with lying to authorities, but not charged about the leaking. We watch that story. Go ahead. All right. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch, and he's going to be on with us for a full hour via video, so you're not going to want to miss this next segment. It's going to be really good. We're going to talk about his new book and a whole bunch of other stuff right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Back to hour number two on this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. We're coming up. We have Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch joining us. You can follow him on social media at Jihad Watch RS or go to jihadwatch.org. We're going to talk to him about his book and there's his Twitter uh, feed right up there on the screen. 99,007, uh, what was that? 99,700 followers. See if we can put that to 100,000 before the end of the show. He needs what three thousand more followers uh, to get to hundred thousand more. Three hundred more. Okay, I'm sorry, uh, but yeah, uh, I never pay attention to stuff like that on Twitter. No, but but you know what? Uh, of all the people that uh, of all the people who are spreading the truth on Twitter, I think uh, Robert Spencer is perhaps one of the most prolific about the threat of Islam that we that we could possibly have on. Go ahead. Yeah, and uh, you know his book. We're going to be talking about. Uh, can you put that back up on the screen, Eric? I don't the, have that. No, the, the book is, uh, the upcoming book is available for pre-order. It's called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Now again, it's available for pre-order. 
It uh, comes out officially on August 7th, 2018. And I want to tell you, just having the insight from this, oh my goodness, this is, this is a book to have for your library and to have at the ready for your resources. Well, while I'm at it, uh, let me take this opportunity to introduce Robert Spencer. You know, it was, it was shortly after 9-11. Um, and I say shortly after, it could, it could be a year or two or thereabouts, but, um, I, I became acquainted with Robert Spencer. Now, if, if he ran in, into me in an airport or something, he would not know who I am. Uh, but I've, I've followed his work and I, I, I've got a number of his books. He's a prolific author. 18 books. Yeah, it's amazing. And each one is better than the next. Um, he's the director of Jihad Watch and is a showman fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. He's the author of 18 books, as you said, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. I've got that. And I refer to that often because the information in that book, you could hand that. Let me tell you something. You could take any one of Mr. Spencer's 18 books and hand it to a relative. That relative that's obstinate or deliberately obtuse. Uh, about Islam, and I guarantee you that that's going to leave a mark. It's going to it's going to make a dent. Um, he uh, again coming coming out August seventh, but please, folks, pre-order this book because it's got so much great information. It's the history of jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. A lot of people aren't really familiar with the historical aspects. Uh, Mr. Spencer ties it all together. He's led seminars on Islam and jihad for the FBI the U.S. Central Command. How many people can say that, right? Uh, the Army Command General Staff College, U.S. Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the Justice Department's Anti-Terrorism Advisory Council, and so much more. And again, I started following his work and reading and just sucking up all of the information I could possibly read. Joe and I both. As a matter of fact, we used to, um, during surveillances, during our investigations and in, in our travel time, uh, discuss his work and, and print his articles. Jihadwatch.org is his website. And as Joe mentioned, let, you know, let, let's get his Twitter following well over a hundred thousand. That's, it's pretty close, but by the end of his appearance, I, I do hope we can do that. If you're not following him, let's follow him. Um, again, a, a man who I have complete admiration and respect for, a guy with as as many brains as balls, and excuse the expression, but this guy, I'll tell you what, uh, he knows his stuff and he's not afraid to say it. And we are so pleased to have with us Mr. Robert Spencer. Mr. Robert Spencer, thank you so very much for appearing with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for the kind and generous introduction, and it's an honor for me to be here. Well, I'll tell you what, it's an honor for us to have you. The introduction is... Well deserved. We've been following your work for quite some time, and you've made such you've made such a difference in my view. Um, you've educated a lot of people about the dangers of of Islam, the dangers of that that we face from whether it's ISIS or or just the threat in general, and you've paid a price for it too. So um, you've got our respect, if you don't mind. Let's just start off, if, if this is okay with you, but we can do whatever you want. You've got a new book coming out, and, and I think I've got 14 of your 18 books in my library. But the one coming up next, I'm most excited about. The history 
of jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. That I'm really excited about. And I think every person should grab a hold of that book. That's going to be available August 7th. Can we start, can, can we talk about that? Can you tell I people? Appreciate it, actually, uh, I, I appreciate it very much because I'm very excited about it too. And I have to tell you, that's not always true. There are some of my books, I'm not going to say which, that I'm not all that happy with, that I, I know could have been better. But this one, I am very excited about because this is a story that has not been told and that I very firmly believe needs to be better known in the West. The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS is actually the first and only book in the English language to trace the entire history of Jihad from the time of Muhammad and the beginning of Islam all around the world for 14 centuries up to today. There have been books that are histories of Jihad against Europe but there is no other book that also covers the jihad against India, which was more devastating than any other place. And jihad in Africa, jihad all around the world. And why is this so important? I'll tell you. I think this is the completion and the culmination of all the work that I've been trying to do for well over two decades to alert people to the nature and magnitude of the jihad threat. That's because... Wow. You know, I, I wrote, for example, a book on the Quran, The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran. And I think people like you and people who are uh, other people who are informed about these issues, they know now. They're very familiar with the idea that there are problematic aspects of the Quran. And I wrote a biography of Muhammad from the earliest Muslim sources, The Truth About Muhammad. And I think also informed people are are aware now that there are very problematic aspects of Muhammad's career. But there's still a whole, a lot of persistent historical myths that people have. They think, well, yes, these things are in the Quran, but of course there was, there were times of tolerance and peace. Muslim Spain was a paradise of multiculturalism, and there were other times when there was peace and mutual respect between Muslims and Jews and Christians. And so really we can just uh, work toward another historical uh, occasion like that. This book shows that those things are historical myths, that jihad has always been in Islam, that it's always been warfare against unbelievers, that that warfare has been consistent throughout Islamic history. Everywhere Muslims have gone, everywhere in the world, at every time there has been jihad, and it always operates according to the same principles that are delineated in the Islamic texts. And so the question... After you read this book, I think that the primary question is, why do we think we're going to be different? Why do we think that this thing that has happened everywhere in the world for 14 centuries is somehow not going to happen in the United States? And we can admit mass numbers of Muslims, and there's not going to be any problem at any time. Hmm. Uh, good points. And you mentioned the, the India, the jihad um, against India. A lot of people really are historically challenged, I believe, and, and that's so critical, a critical component, um, by the way, in, in, in my view, in, 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 in your work. Uh, I don't think people know of, of what happened in India, and that if they do, if this book becomes widely known and people start to realize just what happened there and how consistent it is with what happened in Europe. And there's so many details that are so telling. Like, for example, there was there was a uh, sultan, Akbar the Great. He was the leader of the Mughal Empire in uh, India. And he grew disenchanted with Islam. 
And when he grew disenchanted with Islam, he suddenly started being kind and gentle to the non-Muslims in India. And he abolished the jizya, the tax that the non-Muslims have to pay to the Muslims for the privilege of remaining alive and not being murdered. And he was renowned for his tolerance and peacefulness, but this is only after he left Islam. And his son, Jahangir, was so alarmed that he had the guy who was teaching him and telling him about Islam and leading him away from Islam beheaded and tried to get his father back into Islam. And when he became the Mughal emperor, he brought it all back in spades. All the persecution, the bloodshed, the destruction of temples, all these things that have characterized the history of Islam in India. These things are well known to people in Asia. But people in the United States don't realize that the Muslims in the United States, now of course there are wonderful people among the Muslims in the United States who have no intention of waging jihad, but those who are knowledgeable, those who are devout, those who are determined, are among them, and they operate, they believe the same things that Jahangir believed in India, that so many other Muslim leaders have believed throughout history, and have wrought incredible devastation to non-Muslims as a result. Man. Yeah, right on the money, in in my view. Um, aside from your aside from the book, on on your website, by the way, jihadwatch.org is Robert Spencer's website. Our guest, Robert Spencer, jihadwatch.org, and again, follow him on Twitter. If you if you if you're not following him, click the follow button. Let's get it above a hundred grand uh, followers, much deserved. But one of the articles, I just want to touch on this before I uh, my ADD kicks in. Um, video why it was so disastrous when Bush said Islam is peace after 9-11 the reason I want to touch this now is I think a lot of people in America today their knowledge of Islam or their recognition or what they know began on 9-11 yes. and, and uh, that's kind of like the starting point uh, not understanding the, the you know even Remembering, of course, you know what happened in Iran in '79, and uh, of course everything that happened throughout the decades subsequent. Um, if you don't mind, what's your take on how things? I don't know. What, what you can help me with? You can help me with the question, I guess. 9/11 happened. People all of a sudden, oh, Islam, uh, and then of course we had George Bush saying flowery things. And really, kind of greasing the skids, I believe, for additional terrorism. Um, oh no, about it, yeah. yeah. George Bush, when he went into the mosque in Washington D.C., I believe it was September seventeenth, two thousand one, six days after nine eleven. He's bought, he's got around him all these Muslim leaders. You may remember, yep. and among them was Nihad Awad, the one of the founders and still the uh, executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is a Hamas front with links to the Muslim Brotherhood that is a group that has opposed every counter-terror measure that's ever been implemented anywhere in the United States that constantly demonizes and vilifies people who are trying to draw attention to this threat. He's got him standing right behind him. He's got Abdurrahman Alamudi there of the American Muslim Council, which at that time was the leading moderate Muslim organization in the United States and was since shut down. And Alamudi is now in prison for funding al-Qaeda. So this is the company that George W. Bush was in. And he says Islam is peace at a time when we'd just been hit by Islamic jihadis. 3,000 people were dead. 
People didn't know what was going on. They were looking for answers, and George W. Bush immediately misled the American people and deformed our ability to deal with this threat. Because, you know, remember the oldest adage of warfare, right? Know your enemy. You cannot defeat an enemy that you don't understand, much less one that you refuse to understand. And George Bush was effectively announcing that we are going to refuse to understand what happened to us on 9-11. We're not going to study the ideology that motivated the attack. We're not going to try to counter the ideology. You know, my uh, my father was with the Voice of America when I was a young man. And he used to take me in there in their offices in Washington. And I was thrilled. I was enthralled. It was all so fascinating. And I was very proud and excited. And he would tell me about how the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe would beam broadcasts into the Soviet Union and the other communist countries and trying to explain to them why the Republican government of the United States, why free societies were preferable to a communist society. And I think that they made a lot of headway and won a lot of hearts and minds among people in the Soviet Union who ultimately helped to bring about the downfall of what Ronald Reagan called the evil empire. But if you think about it now, there's never been any kind of attempt to deal on the same level with the ideology that fueled 9-11. No, nobody's ever dared, because it's Islam, it's, it's a religion, and there are these false ideas floating around that people take for granted, that if you say that it has to do with Islam, we'll end up being at war with 1.8 billion people. Well, what's the certainty that all of them are going to fight? or that all of them are going to care to fight, or that all of them think with one mind. Uh, I think that if we'd gone into Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11, I mean, I'm not saying that we should have gone into Iraq and Afghanistan at all, but it, it, granted that we have to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, then we should... Imagine how different things would have been if we had gone in and said, if you are a Muslim who is tired of Islam and you want to leave, but you're afraid of Islam's death penalty for apostates, you can find refuge with us. If you are a woman who's being beaten by your husband, you can find refuge with us. If you are a non-Muslim who's being brutalized by your Muslim neighbors, you can find refuge with us. I think we would have been overseeing an immense groundswell of support. You look at Iran. Those people, the mass, massive numbers of people in Iran, they don't want the Islamic Republic. It's very clear. They just have no alternative. They have nobody standing for them. If we had gone into Iran after 9-11, now that it's come out, something that I also discuss in this book, actually, that Iran was involved in 9-11. If we had gone into Iran and said, we are going to offer you an alternative to the Islamic Republic, we would have had massive support among the Iranian people. And so George W. Bush prevented all that by saying that Islam is peace and taking the ideology off the table so that we can't know what we're up against, we can't know who hit us or why, we can know who hit us in terms of their names and so on, but not at all about, not anything about their motivations. And so, you know, as, as a matter of fact, talking about the history of jihad, when I was writing that book, it really hit me with a wallop, and I hope it will also have the same effect upon the reader. I wrote it in a more or less chronological fashion. I did have to go back and stick some things in, but mostly I wrote it from the 7th century on up to the 21st. And so... I remember the day when I started on the 21st and knew that it was it was going to, of course, chapter 10, the, 20, the, the chapter on the 21st century, was going to have to start with 9-11. And I went and found Bush's speech at the mosque, 
and quoted it at length. And it hit me with a real wallop, more than it did even at the time, because I had just finished tracing 14 centuries of uninterrupted, unmitigated, relentless, brutal, bloody jihad activity carried out in the name of Islam and in accord with its teachings. And then it comes to America and the President of the United States says, Islam is peace. Yeah, that's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking, you know. In the, in that context, I think it has a particular power. Absolutely, it does. And what is it with this mindset, the, the same mindset you're talking about that George Bush adapted, that we see in Europe? We see this uh, unwillingness to to identify Islam for what it is, even going so far as passing laws uh, against those who who dare to criticize it. What is this? Uh, uh, I don't, I don't, liberal insanity. Yeah. I mean, what? But what is the the, the the West role we we see this acceptance of it almost uh, in defiance of any common sense or, or reason uh, or any any reality. Well, where is this coming well, from? Of course, Bush was not singular, and what he said became the official line of the Republican Party, and of course the Democrats were happy to be on board with that as well. And uh, it, it's something that is very very powerful on the left even more so than among the establishment conservatives that Bush represented. And I think it's powerful on the left because, and of course the governments of Europe are almost unanimously all leftists. Well, think about it this way. You have these governments that are ruled by these socialist internationalists who believe that nationalism is the problem and are cracking down on nationalists in their countries and calling them neo-Nazis and so on. And they say that they we need to open borders and bring out everybody in. All these Muslim migrants from Africa and Asia and anybody else wants to come into Europe now, it's all open. And they want to break down the idea of the nation state itself. They want to destroy nations, destroy ethnicities, and destroy borders, and make every place pretty much like every other place. Now, there's a utopian vision at the heart of this, I think that they believe that if they do this, there will be peace, there will be no more war, because they believe that all wars are based on economic inequalities. And so if Paris and London are pretty much just like Karachi and Dar es Salaam, then there won't be any more need for war. If every place is as poor and squalid and dirty as every other place, then there's no need to fight. And the Islamist peace idea and their relentless attachment to it, despite all evidence to the contrary, I think it goes hand in hand with that because you have the idea that Islam is peace and so you keep telling the people that like Goebbels did the big lie during Nazi Germany and you keep repeating it until people start to believe the big lie and the idea is to break down the resistance if Islam is peace then there's no reason to be concerned about these massive numbers of Muslim migrants who are coming into the country and they want their people to be ignorant and complacent about what's going on and about the nature of what we're dealing with, so that they will accept their socialist internationalist agenda. And I think that that's why, ultimately, in Europe, there's just such uh, institutionalized insanity about this issue. And it's it seems like a contagion uh, that's moving uh, that's moving west, but uh, into the United States. But, but I, I, I kind of wanted to expand, if you don't mind, on that topic. Um, if you were and I, if you and I were having a conversation, well, we are having a conversation, but over coffee, I, I, I'm I'm just intrigued um, 
about this marriage between the Muslims and the Marxists. I'm blown away by the fact that you could have this women's march, for example, and then have this Muslim support, you know, Linda Sarsour being a part of this. Um, how do you explain that rationally? Or, or did you just do that, I guess? I, you know, well, there's, of course, it, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, okay. you know? Okay. And so the, what we see now is that the left hates the United States, hates Western civilization, hates Judaism and Christianity, and hates the conservatives more than they hate anything else. So they say that they stand for women's rights. And Islam is the most misogynistic system on the planet. But they're okay with Islam because Islam is set against everything else that they hate even more. That is the Judeo-Christian tradition, the United States, and the West. And so Linda Sarsour, who's wearing the hijab, which is a symbol of the oppression of Muslim women, which has been the occasion for many Muslim women to be brutalized and even killed for refusing to wear it. And in the Islamic Republic of Iran right now, women are taking it off as a sign of defiance against the Islamic regime and are facing sometimes 10-year prison sentences for doing so. And so it's just the opposite of a feminist thing, the hijab. But Linda Sarsour, the hijab-wearing feminist, is one of the leaders of the Women's March, which shows the Women's March doesn't really care about women. The feminist movement in the West doesn't really care about women. What they care about is destroying the West, destroying Judeo-Christian civilization, destroying the United States of America as its foremost exponent today. And so to that end, they're happy to unite with hijabis like Linda Sarsour and give them great power and influence. And then, who knows, maybe the feminists think that they will be able to ride the tiger and take care of the oppression of Islam after they've destroyed the West. I think they're going to be in for a surprise in that if they get to that point. Uh, same thing, uh, I guess same question about the, the homosexual agenda teaming up with, with Islam. We've seen this really weird uh, push lately where you have uh, so many of these pride uh, parades and movements that are uh, propping up Islam as some sort of uh, oppressed kindred you know, uh, spirit to the, the homosexual agenda. Especially when the uh, many of the is- Islamic, or, or I'd say all of the Islamic countries, uh, look at uh, homosexuality as, as a sin. Uh, how can this be? How can this merger happen? Or is this just delusion? I think it's the same thing, that they... They have revealed now that they don't really care about what they say they care about. And that is supposedly the, the equal human rights of homosexuals or whatever. What they care about is destroying the West. And that's what it's about. I tell you, I've, I've encountered this many times. I was speaking at, uh, the University of Buffalo, or rather I was being yelled at at the University of Buffalo. I stood there <laughs> for an hour and a half while all the uh, leftists and Muslim students yelled and screamed at me, and then it was time to go. But uh, that, that's that's American campuses today. One young man I saw there, he was holding up a sign, and it said, Queers Against Islamophobia. And so I saw that, and I, I, I did speak throughout the uh, the whole event, I, I spoke very softly and was trying to get them to quiet down to uh, hear what I was saying. And actually, it worked every now and again. And at one of these points, I opened up a manual of Islamic law that I had with me and started reading about how homosexuals should be put to death in Islamic law. 
And the whole place went wild. The whole place booed and booed. And it was as if I had written the Manual of Islamic Law, you know, that I had made that up. And this uh, Muslim guy with the long beard and the kufi and the kaftan, he goes up to the Queers Against Islamophobia fellow and gives him a big hug and says, this is my best friend. And I think, okay, this this is a college, this is a university, and they can't think clearly. Uh, Islamic law is not nullified if this one individual is the friend of another individual. Islamic law is still what it is. Homosexuals are still being executed in Iran by the Islamic State, ISIS, and else in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. And the idea that 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 uh, this is somehow some terrible Islamophobic thing for me to mention, it just shows the madness that prevails on the left today. But uh, that is, I believe, again, at the core of it, it is all about destroying the West. And they're happy to ally with a group that has been set against the West as a mortal enemy for 1,400 years in order to accomplish that goal. Hey, our, our guest, folks, if you're just joining us uh, right here on the Global Star Radio Network as well as BTR and YouTube, uh, Robert Spencer, a, a gentleman I, I have a lot of respect for who's got uh, the intellect and the courage to go out and to tell the truth about the threats we face. His new book, available August 7th, I would urge everyone to pre-order it because it is really his magnum opus, as, as he indicated. The title, of course, is The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. And again, available August 7th. If you go to jihadwatch.org, there on the right, you can pre-order it, do so. Get your hard copy. And uh, th- that's my preference, by the way, um, and, and have it waiting for you uh, when it's released. Uh, Mr. Spencer, you... you you, with your book, with your experience, I mean, we can go in so many different directions. And, and I, again, I want to thank you so much for your gracious gift of time tonight. Thank you. Um, I'm looking at America um, here in June of 2018. I'm looking at, of course, Europe uh, as well. Uh, looking back at the Obama regime, I, I don't even want to call it an administration. One of the other questions I really wanted to ask you was was how badly are how badly have we been infiltrated by by the Islamic threat our government under especially under Obama how badly has this hurt us the infiltration into our government Well I think it's very bad but there's no way to know the full extent of it because there's never been an investigation You may recall and I talk about this in the history of jihad as well you may recall back in 2012 uh, then Representative Michelle Bachman of Minnesota called for an investigation of Muslim Brotherhood infiltration into the U.S. government. And she actually named names. Muhammad Ali Biari, who was in the Department of Homeland Security, and others in the, in high places in the Obama administration, who she said had ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and to other Islamic organizations. As it happened, you know, I know Muhammad Alibiari. I met him once years ago when I was speaking in Dallas, which is where he is from, or in, in those environs. And uh, not long after that, or, or around that time, in any case, whether it was before or after I met him in person, I don't remember, um, I noted that he was speaking at a conference that was celebrating the great Islamic visionary, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, the Ayatollah Khomeini is, of course, the founding figure of the Islamic Republic of Iran, 
It was a brutal and bloodthirsty regime. He was a brutal and bloodthirsty ruler. And he ruled according to the tenets of Islam. And so for somebody who is supposed to be a moderate Muslim who's in the Department of Homeland Security to be speaking at a conference praising Khomeini, it was a red flag. And Alibiari waved it away and said, oh, he didn't know. He didn't know that's what the conference was about. And I think that is so ridiculous. It's you know, I speak all over all the time. Yeah. And if, imagine if I were to speak at a, at a Klan rally. I never would. This is a hypothetical. But imagine if I ended up speaking at a Klan rally and then the Southern Poverty Law Center or somebody started to ask me, why did you speak there? You must be in favor of the Klan. And I would say, oh, no, 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 I didn't know that's what it was. It, it, nobody would believe that. It's absolutely beyond ridiculous. But they actually believed it enough in Alibiari's case, or Obama didn't care enough in Alibiari's case to put him in the Department of Homeland Security. So at length, Bachman is just calling for an investigation of that. And what happened? There was no investigation. Instead, John McCain denounced her on the Senate floor, and there was a chorus of denunciations from other people, from the Muslim Brotherhood Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota and others, saying that she was racist, she was bigoted, she was Islamophobic, even for just calling for this investigation. And one of the biggest things that they said was how terrible it was that she had suggested that Huma Abedin, Hillary Clinton's assistant, had connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't hard. This is a matter of public record. You can find easily the evidence that Huma Abedin's father and mother and brother were all Muslim Brotherhood operatives, and that she herself worked for a Muslim Brotherhood publication, a magazine, yep. for eight years and was listed on its masthead. And when confronted about this, she said, oh, that was a mistake. I wasn't involved. I They just had me on their masthead uh, as some error. And I think, come on, you know, how many, how many of these flimsy lies are we expected to be able to swallow? It's ridiculous. Clearly, this is a woman who has Muslim Brotherhood connections, but there was no investigation. We don't know the kind of power that she had on Hillary Clinton, uh, but and in the Obama administration, for that matter, while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. But there is no doubt that Obama, in his administration, followed the Brotherhood line consistently and never wavered from it and aided the establishment of the Brotherhood regime in Egypt to the extent that when it was toppled the next year, people were holding signs in Cairo saying, Obama, stop supporting terrorism. And, you know, there can be no investigation of this. This is There's no sign of Muslim Brotherhood influence in the U.S. government. There's plenty more. But I don't want to take the whole rest of our time just laying out the evidence. The fact is there is an abundance of evidence. It's readily available. Some of it is in the book, The History of Jihad. Many of those people are still in place in the U.S. government, and it's never been investigated. One of the things that's yeah. so interesting about uh, Robert Mueller heading up this Trump-Russia investigation that was pointed out by several representatives is how under Mueller's leadership in the FBI, many of the FBI's training manuals about uh, Islamic terrorism and jihad were scrubbed for uh, politically correct purposes as, as the excuse under Barack Obama, under Bush and under Barack Obama, that the FBI has never recovered from that. Uh, do you go into your book at any length about uh, things like this or stories like this where we've seen uh, how the U.S. government is influenced by, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood or CARE, into purging its own training manuals 
on how to spot and identify and, and, and what to look out for uh, pertaining to jihad? Oh, yeah. That's all in the book. Because actually, you know, I was involved in that personally. Uh, it's a very long story. I'll keep it short. Uh, I was for five years training FBI and military groups on a, on a semi-regular basis on uh, the nature of, of the mindset of the terrorists. I would go into FBI offices or go to military bases and uh, hold these seminars on the uh, Quran and Muhammad, telling it, helping the people involved to get into the mind of the people they were trying to counter, to understand their motives and their goals and so on. And so anyway, uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations and other Muslim groups got wind of this, and on October 19th, 2011, the 57 Muslim and allied organizations wrote a letter to John Brennan, who was then in the Homeland Security Department, of course later became Obama's CIA chief. And they named me specifically and said I had to be removed as a trainer for the military and for the FBI. And they said that further there are these, these manuals and materials that actually suggest that Islam has something to do with terrorism. And they all have to be removed. And Brennan immediately complied so that the Obama counter-terror program, the national policy for dealing with terrorism from 2011 to 2017 did not make any mention of Islam and Jihad in connection with terrorism and rendered our agents and our military personnel abysmally ignorant about the mindset and the motivating ideology behind Jihad terrorism. It's still pretty much like that. Trump has spoken about changing things but hasn't gotten around to it yet. Very interesting. Wow. Uh, our guest, of course, again, Robert Spencer, jihadwatch.org. Follow him on Twitter. His new book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, uh, is coming out. Uh, well, it's available right now for pre-order. I would urge everyone to do that. The official release date is August 7th, 2018. Um, one one last question before you can talk about anything you really want to talk about. Uh, i I, I got to ask this just for clarification. There's been so many, um, there's so many accusations of Islamophobia, uh, especially like by, by CARE and Islamophobia Inc., uh, their series and so much money being poured into fighting this Islamophobia. But, but a subset of that, a component of that, of course, is Sharia. My question to you, is Sharia, very simply, is Sharia compatible with our representative republic, our country? No. Thank you. It denies the freedom of speech. It denies the freedom of conscience. It denies equality of rights to women, to non-Muslims, to others. And so how on earth is that compatible with the society that we enjoy under the U.S. Constitution? Exactly. Okay. It, it, it just, it just seems like I've been, I recently have been inundated. I don't know what the impetus is, but I've been inundated with, oh my goodness, you're, you know, you're misrepresenting, uh, uh, Sharia and, and such. And, uh, but anyway, I, I thought I, I wanted to get that question out because I, I do know your position, of course, reading your material and, um, of course, uh, you know, your, your book coming out. But yeah, I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, now having said that, we, we've got, uh, we've got really tens of thousands of current listeners in a number of different countries. What's important to you? What, what's, aside from, and certainly your book is important, I think everyone needs to grab a hold of a copy of your new book coming out, but what's, as you sit there today, what's important to you? What's on your heart? What's on your mind? What should we be talking about? 
I think one of the main things we need to be talking about is the war against the freedom of speech and the fact that Islamic groups and leftist groups are trying to shut down the kind of conversation that we're having right now. Uh, of course, most of this is happening right now on uh, social media. Uh, the social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they hold more power over the means of communication today than any totalitarian government ever had. And that's very scary because they're all leftists who want to deplatform people who dissent from the leftist agenda. And they're doing that. You take, for example, in my own experience, and I am not at all singular in this, but in my own experience, my website, Jihad Watch, for years got about 25,000 referrals from Facebook every day. 20,000 to 25,000. Last February 2017, February 2017, so it's a year and a half now, it dropped to, in the middle of the month, about February 11th or 12th, I believe it was, one day, it dropped suddenly to 2,000 referrals a day from Facebook. A 90% drop-off, if my math is correct. And it, oh, it has been there ever since, or lower. Facebook found some algorithm, some mm-hmm. way to call yeah. the the referrals from Jihad Watch. And we hear that all over the place. And many others, Gateway Pundit. Were you part of the, the Media Research Center's study on this, where they put the screenshots of the Facebook views and, and how they all change pretty much overnight, just like what you're describing. Yeah. And it's a concerted effort. I think what happened was the uh, 2016 election blindsided the left. They thought they had it sewed up. I mean, of course, they had it rigged in a lot of ways, as we know now. Uh, they had this whole frame-up of, pres- of, of Donald Trump uh, it, it, with this ridiculous collusion with the Russians and they had all, all these illegal aliens voting and all sorts of ways to make sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And she didn't win. And they were completely blindsided. They want to make sure it never happens again. And that it especially doesn't happen in 2018. And what I think they're trying to do is make sure that all the people who were dissenting from the establishment media line during the 2016 election are going to have their voices closed off, are going to be choked out, and nobody's going to be able to hear them. And so that the only people they're going to be able to hear are people like Chris Cuomo and the Democrats will run the table in the 2018 midterms. And then they'll impeach Trump and remove him and everything will be great as far as they're concerned. And that's that's their plan, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that's, yeah. Yeah, the 2018 midterms being a uh, testing run for the 2020 elections. And this is where it really gets dicey when you're talking about censoring the political speech is because you have candidates who use social media uh, to get their points across. President Trump has been one of the, uh, the biggest users of social media of any politician we've ever seen. And if they are able to start censoring, uh, you know, these candidates, these candidates' uh, ideologies and opinions and beliefs, just imagine where this can go with only one side of the aisle uh, getting, you know, that, that fair coverage and, and the other side being censored. You know, Mr. Spencer, I'm very, very concerned about this. Perhaps this... I had said this about 18 months ago that, that censorship to me was one of the most important stories of our, of our time. At that time, um, we're faced with shadow banning. We're faced with demonetization. We're faced with people coming to our sponsors, our, our network sponsors and, uh, saying that, that we're hate speech. Um, we're victims of, in my view, lawfare. Uh, we're, you know, well, I can't say any more than that. Um, and, and 
it's going to be a lot worse for you, right? I mean, of course, you're being shouted down or disinvited from campuses. Um, you've got people who want to kill you, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I was a, a co-organizer and one of the speakers at uh, the uh, Muhammad Art Exhibit and Cartoon Contest in Garland, Texas, in 2015. Uh, of course, Pamela Geller is the uh, print was the principal right. organizer, and uh, she and I were there when the jihadis came and attacked the event. And of course, then she was attacked after the event by mainstream media types, including people who are supposed to know better, like uh, Bill O'Reilly and Laura Ingram, saying that she shouldn't have insulted Muhammad, shouldn't insult Islam. The point was to stand up for the freedom of speech and to say, we're not going to accept this bullying. If you're saying you're going to kill people for drawing Muhammad, then we either have to submit to you and say, okay, you can get what you want from us by bullying us, or we have to stand up. So we were trying to stand up. But, yeah, they tried to kill us there. I was speaking in Iceland last year, and I was poisoned afterward by a leftist. And, of course, the Icelandic police, even though I know who did it, the Icelandic police didn't do a thing, didn't arrest anybody. It's clear that uh, I don't have the right opinions. No, I had, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Yeah, just for... guy. I, I just, I just want to revisit this, just for people, because I know uh, I do know the story. But for people who are not familiar with Robert Spencer, here's a guy speaking the truth, poisoned in Iceland. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on that? Um, yes, sir, that's fine. We had a very good event in Iceland. Uh, there were uh, 500 people at our event, and you have to keep that in perspective. Uh, there are about 300,000 people in Iceland, and 500 were at our event. That would be like in America with 300, 300 million people if you had an event with 500,000 people. It was massive, you know, and it went very well, and we were all very happy, and we went out to a restaurant afterward, and uh, this gentleman came up to me, and he said, Mr. Spencer, I'm a big fan. Can I shake your hand? And uh, I shook his hand, and he was leaning over the table. It seems clear from what happened uh, afterward that he put something in the drink that I had. Uh, and uh, uh, so anyway, I started feeling very ill and vomiting and so on, went into the hospital, spent the night in the emergency room there. And uh, that's another story. But in any case, um, I was able, because Iceland is so small and everybody knows everybody, I was able to find out very quickly who the young man was. And there really isn't any other suspect. There, it, it is possible that they, whoever put the drink together and served us, that, that, it could have been them. And so, you're talking about two or three people total that could, that could have done this. And in any case, the Iceland, I gave the name to the Icelandic police of the young man and, uh, the, all the details and they had the, the report from the emergency room with these poisons in my system and so on. And anyway, they didn't do anything. As a matter of fact, it took them 19 days to question the young man. And uh, I think, you know, you can get rid of a lot of evidence in that time. And uh, they never made any arrests, never prosecuted anyone. I think it's uh, because Iceland has a leftist government. This whole incident would have embarrassed them. If I had been Linda Sarsour and been poisoned in Iceland, they would have been right on it. But I don't have the right opinions for them to care. That's an incredible story. And if you don't mind me asking, uh, or if you don't mind telling, what, what was the poison? What was identified as uh, in your system? It was MDMA, which is ecstasy, and a lot of people laugh when they hear that. That's why I don't usually identify it, because a lot of people, I understand, I, I don't know anything about it, but a lot of people, they take this for fun. 
But I had overdose levels, and the overdose levels are uh, can be fatal. It yeah. involves a resting heartbeat. As a matter of fact, the emergency room doctor was also a leftist who, on his Facebook page, he has all this stuff about how uh, anybody who opposes mass Muslim migration into Europe is a racist and a bigot and all this other nonsense. And uh, he didn't do basic tests and uh, was basically essentially leaving me to die. It wasn't convenient for him uh, to perform his uh, duties as a physician. So I uh, complained to the Icelandic Medical Ethics Board. I had testimony from physicians here who said that this is what you ought to have done in an emergency room with somebody my age coming in with these symptoms. He didn't do any of these things. But here again, the Icelandic Medical Board, they covered for this guy and nothing was done. Uh, it's very clear and it's an ominous sign in the world. You know, people who are hearing this, they might not like me. They might not like what I do. But this could happen to you, too. If, if this is the way the world is now, you uh, may end up being uh, uh, denied justice by police and denied medical care by physicians if they don't like your political views. And if you think that's only going to happen to those other people, well, one day when all of us are gone, that's going to start happening to you. See, this yeah. is why this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> and, and for those, I mean, the 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 MDMA that it absolutely is yeah. a poisoning. Not only can it have the harmful physical effects, but long lasting mental uh, effects. It's like uh, dropping LSD unknown into someone's drink. That can have, uh, you know, long lasting impact. Don't uh, give, give right wing watch any any. Well, it's just crazy to me no. that uh, that that can happen. And yeah. in the story you talk about, even the doctor's not treating yeah, you right for that. No, I'm sorry, but, we, we over-talked you. We didn't mean to do okay, that. I'm sorry. I said a lot of people would say I was crazy long before that. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what, I'd like to be as crazy as you are, given the fact that uh, a prol- prolific author and your new book, which, folks, it, it really is a must-read, uh, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, coming out in just, uh, what, uh, two August short months. August 7th, 2018. Yeah. You can pre-order it now. Uh, Mr. Spencer, I want to ask you this. We talked about the... You know the the left's political craziness and ideology of uh, mass Muslim migration, and uh, but well, I got to ask you this: we've seen this phenomenon in the last ten years just explode in America, and that is this emergence of Chrislam. These Christian churches that are embracing Islam, even teaching Islam uh, in their own uh, to their own congregations, and 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 having imams come in and uh, basically disarming. People saying, "Oh, it, you know, furthering that narrative of Islam is peace." What what is it with these the, these Christian uh, churches and congregations who are, are are promoting Islamic ideas? Well, here again, it's all on the left, and they believe that uh, there's this whole idea now in the Catholic Church and in other uh, uh, churches. Uh, Rick Warren is a big proponent of this idea, and many others that we can sit down and have dialogue with those that we disagree with and we'll be able to deal, overcome all our differences. And so uh, I've actually had it happen to me. I became persona non grata, essentially, in the Catholic Church, and the U.S. Catholic bishops worked very hard to make sure I did not have any platforms within uh, the Catholic Church in the United States because I was speaking about Muslim persecution of Christians. And uh, one ca- Roman Catholic bishop in Massachusetts, actually, when he canceled an event that I'd been invited to speak at, he said if uh, that my talk about Muslim persecution of Christians might harm the progress of the dialogue. 
that they're having with the Muslim community there in the Boston area. I thought that was very ironic when the Boston Marathon bombings happened not long after that. Uh, it, sh- it showed that his dialogue was really doing great. But <laughs> it, even more to the point about that dialogue is that it did not save one Christian in the Middle East from being persecuted by ISIS. It didn't save one church from being destroyed. All it does actually is muzzle the Western Christians who might be calling attention to this issue so that something could be done about it. And so it's a very, very tremendous abdication of their responsibility on a part of the Catholic Church, on a part of many other churches. And uh, a lot of it has to do with this Chrislam, that the, it's, it's an extension of this idea that we show this uh, outstretched hand of goodwill and it will be reciprocated. Well, as a matter of fact, Islam is a culture that works on strength and honor. And they will see the outstretched hand of goodwill and the holding of prayer services, Islamic prayer services in Christian churches as a sign of weakness. They're not going to reciprocate. I often track on Jihad Watch, my website, cases where churches hold events featuring Islamic prayer in the churches. And never once have I seen, and I challenge anybody to show me one, any Christian event ever held in a mosque. No mosque has ever opened its doors in a reciprocal fashion. Christians are constantly opening churches to Muslims, holding Islamic prayer that denies basic tenets of Christianity. And it's never reciprocated. It's never seen as a gesture of goodwill that should call forth a reciprocal gesture of goodwill, ever. It's only seen as a weakness, and that weakness, the church is going to one day regret that it showed because it's going to have catastrophic consequences for the people that the Christians who hosted these events should have been alerting to the problem and trying to protect. Yeah, and exactly. it's amazing. It's just mind-boggling. It's that whole mentality that you talked about earlier, the political uh, mentality and the religious mentality. I just don't get it. But uh, uh, we only have, Mr. Spencer, we only have about five minutes left with you. What do you see for the future of America and the future of Islam? Is it going to be a, a battle uh, between these two ideologies? Uh, is this going to resolve itself in a different way? How do you see this all playing out? Well, I think that one thing that I show in the history of jihad is Islam is consistent. That 14 centuries, it's been the same way. I don't think it's going to change. There's going to be more strife, more violence in the United States insofar as there are more Muslims. No, I'm not saying all Muslims are terrorists. I'm not saying all Muslims are with this program. But the more Muslims you have, the more Muslims you're going to have who are. And there's no reason why we should think we're going to be spared this. Nobody's ever been spared. It's always been this way. So what I see for the United States is more conflict over these issues, more uh, open violence over these issues. I don't want to see this happen, of course, but aside from Trump's attempts to impose travel bans from jihadi hotspots, there's not a whole lot being done about it. You're a racist, bigoted Islamophobe if you say, we ought to be concerned that 80% of mosques in the United States are Saudi-funded, and not coincidentally, 80% are also teaching hatred of Jews and Christians and the necessity, ultimately, to replace the Constitution with Islamic law. We ought to be worried about those things. We ought to be trying to take steps to make sure that our children and our children's children will be living in a free society. But, uh, you know, the people who say these things have been a very very effectively demonized and marginalized by the leftist intelligentsia, by the political elites, by the media elites. So I don't see how we're going to avoid a lot of trouble at this point. I still have hope 
and confidence that the truth will prevail, that freedom will prevail. Islam is also, at the same time as it's advancing in the West, a very weak and brittle system. After all, it forbids criticism of Islam and shuts down speech that is critical of Islam. It's very insecure in that way. It can't discuss, can't debate. There are Muslim debaters. I've debated plenty of imams myself. You can go on YouTube and see. But they always lose because they're lying. They say Islam is peace and so on, and I can show them from the Quran and from Muhammad that it ain't. And so the thing is, they would rather not have debates like that. Most of the people that I have asked, invited to debate, have refused. And they would rather not have any discussion of this at all. And so I think that when you ask what's the future of the U.S. and what's the future of Islam, I remember the movie Rocky II. I don't know if you ever saw that. Oh, yeah. But yep. uh, the two boxers are fighting. It's the second bout, not the first. And in the, in, in the second movie. And at the end of the fight, they both fall. And the winner is just going to be the guy who gets up first. <laughs> and that's what I suspect might happen in this case. The, the, that is a... Uh, chilling but I believe uh, an appropriate analogy <laughs> Mr. Spencer I want to thank you so much for your gracious gift of time uh, you're, in my view again you're a, a, a tremendous uh, a tremendous writer you're a, a very courageous man and uh, certainly a treasure to our na- a national treasure and uh, I want to thank you for all of the hard work that you do to uh, to write this country to correct the course of this country and for everything you've done and and really I would you come back and visit with us some more anytime it's been a pleasure call me anytime all right uh we are going to be talking and promoting your book coming out in august and again having a sneak peek of it i I just i gotta say thank you for writing it it's uh it's well needed all right god bless you my friend you too thank you Folks, that was Robert Spencer, his book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Let me tell you something. Uh, in fact, I'll read this, just the, the last sentence. This book is indispensable to understanding the geopolitical situation of the 21st century and ultimately, and this is the key, ultimately to formulating strategies to reform Islam and defeat radical terror. Now, there it is right there. And this is a complete compendium. Again, from uh, from Muhammad to ISIS, it covers the the entire waterfront. And I want to thank Keith Hansen, publicly thank Keith Hansen, and also John Robertson as well for making this interview possible. But uh, Robert Spencer, again, a, a man I look up to. Joe, I know you and I have spoken about yeah. his work. and Very important. Yep. Especially indeed. when we see... As we talked about, this disconnect from reality by some on the left and the intentional uh, flooding of this Islamic ideology into our system, but but camouflaging it as a religion of peace, when in reality and historically it has been the complete opposite. And at every chance it gets, we'll, we'll take that uh, conquest. And we know that, it, it, and I'm sure... Can't wait to read this new book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. See, I and don't forget peek. to follow Robert Spencer on his Twitter account at JihadWatchRS, at JihadWatchRS, and, and hopefully we can get him back on just as that book is uh, being published and being released. You can get it for pre-order now, but on August 7th it will be available and we'll have him back on in the near future. Andrew McCarthy did a, uh, I think did the forward on it, if I remember correctly. So, Interesting. Yeah. 
When we come back, Stan Dale will be with us for his weekly spot. Go to standale.com. We'll be right back. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. Again, it is June 12, 2018. How time flies. My wife, uh, right before I came to the studio, my wife and I were talking, and we were noting dates, and, and she said, my goodness, do you realize it's June 12th already, half, almost halfway through June? And if you think about it, doesn't time feel like it's really accelerating? But I digress. Uh, folks, uh, I'd like you to do us a favor. All right? Now, listen carefully. HagmanReport.com. Would you do me a favor? Would you bookmark HagmanReport.com? We're not looking for clicks and traffic. That's not. No. We want to share with you some important information. And perhaps one of the most incredible, <laughs> incredible things I've seen. Peter Chalka, who writes for HagmanReport.com, has uploaded and written two articles. One, Joe, you and I were talking about yeah. Chris Cuomo's interview yesterday with uh, the MAGA hat wearing Dennis Rodman. And there it is. The Chris Cuomo, Dennis Rodman Singapore Summit Classic interview. And you just, you remarked about Rodman and such. Well, Peter Chauka has some, in fact, he uploaded the, the video. And no, has, just the, just the image. Or, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He I, does have the link. Link to the video. To the video. Yeah. yeah. But, but, I, Please read that. Please read that article. And watch the video, too, if you Yes, can. yes, indeed. Uh, some interesting, you know, the thought flow, uh, when we do programs like this, it's amazing to me how Peter Chuck is able to, to just, like, man, kind of supplement our discussion. And, and that's not, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be, uh, uh, be flowery here or anything like that, but, it's really a gift, and I want to thank publicly thank Peter Chucka for doing that. And then Joe, you mentioned the second article there as well. Yeah, which uh, it it summarizes what is uh, the the first historic meeting. Yes, POTUS gives first post summit interviews to ABC and Fox News, and uh, Peter gets into the the interviews. And one of the things that um, was pretty interesting about some of the remarks post summit that Trump made was he talked about the auto. Uh, Warnbeard, the the yes, kid who yes, was uh, yes. brought back from North Korea, basically in a coma, who died days later, and talked about how this summit would have not been possible if it were not for him, and how he had not died in vain. And the parents uh, actually issued a; uh, they were very thankful for the president in including him in this uh, process. And I, don't, I didn't get a chance to read this article. I don't know if Peter included that. I don't know if those were even included in those interviews, but I know it was something he said. Uh, in a statement he made after the summit. So, well, a gifted writer indeed, Peter Chauka. And follow Peter on, on Twitter, uh, at P Chauka. Okay, on Twitter. But definitely go, folks, please, bookmark Hagman Report. But most importantly, read the two latest articles there. I think, uh, uh, thank you, Peter. Just thank you. Um, now, I, I, again, I want to thank Keith Hansen for arranging the interview with Robert Spencer. I thought, uh, thank you, Keith. Thank you. And and by the way, uh, Eric, you can chime in on this. <laughs> I want to hear this mic. I didn't get a chance to hear this mic. You didn't. Before. He 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 jumped in last week, 
and we got an awesome response. I'm going to see if I can. I forwarded you the email right, that we got. Right. I don't know if you saw the the meme somebody put together uh, for uh, Eric, but it was pretty cool. And I'll see if I can find it. Well, here. Eric, um, tell us, Keith Hansen's. Uh, there's an event coming up, correct? Yes, there is. Don't talk too much now. <laughs> We do have the Keith Hansen event coming up. Yes. As a matter of fact, if you go to HagmanReport.com, in addition to bookmarking it and reading Peter Chaka's articles, and, and the, so there's an event coming up. Please, please, please do us a favor. In a couple of weeks, I believe it's the, instead of the, instead of this coming weekend, it's the weekend following. If you're interested, uh, Keith is, is graciously going to be giving a, um, a class on, a, a handgun class in a, uh, it's, it's more than that. But also, there will be, I believe, a meet and greet with Keith Hansen, myself, Joe, um, as well on the night before. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gonna be a really nice, comfortable time together. But please go to HagmanReport.com and check that out. Anything you wanna say, Eric, in addition to that? Uh, no, stands ready. Okay, okay, thank <laughs> you very much. And by the way, I was, I, I have to tell you this. I was um, I was out last week, but I did make it a very special point to uh, view the very special um, time that Stan spent, Stan and uh, the two guests spent yeah, with very Joe and John. And I've got to tell you, folks, if you haven't seen last week, go to Hagman Report and download the, the video or watch the video. Of Stan's amazing. This Stan, Stan Dale is amazing. He called. He called me from Chicago uh, from the airport, and uh, before he even got home, and was telling me about the. And I was so excited just to hear it. So you've got to watch that. But with that, I don't want to take any more time up from Stan. Stan, thanks so much for coming back. No problem. Uh, you know, it's uh, kind of a regular thing every Tuesday night to share with you guys. And uh, well, it's been a lot of news. Uh, in addition to the Garden of Eden stuff, there's been a lot happening over in North Korea and in Canada. I can't believe the stuff that we've been hearing. Uh, it's an amazing accomplishment for this president to, to get this far. It's it's something that no other president that I know of other than Reagan has ever tried to do and has succeeded. You know, I, I heard that, and Joe and I were talking about this earlier, but, but I, I heard uh, Donald Trump being described as Reagan 2.0. You know, um, they've been making that comparison for a long time. I yeah, mean. yeah. So, so, out of all the news nuggets, aside from the, uh, well, of course, you being Indiana Jones, you could perhaps do a forensic analysis on Trudeau's eyebrow. We'll put that aside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, out of all the news, what do you think is the most important? I mean, what do you want to start off with? Because you, you've got your finger on the pulse of, of geopolitics. Well, if you go to our uh, our home page, you know Holly has put up a number of articles there. Um, we're seeing things there, you know, that do still indicate that there are changes occurring in the Earth's crust. Uh, let me just see. There was one article down at the bottom left um, um, about boater dies after sinkhole creates whirlpool. I saw that. River. Yeah, kind of. Well, they've now roped off that area and put mooring pontoons for people using it uh, that normally, uh, you know, kayak down the river there. But uh, what uh, would cause that? I mean, that's got to be a big hole that opened up under the river. And, uh, of course, the Coriolis forces would make it uh, 
spin around like that. But, uh, yeah, that's the one right there. <clears throat> p- pardon the pun, but that would suck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you have to? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Uh, no, that's pretty yeah. tragic. Uh, yeah. But, okay, okay. the world, okay, go ahead. This, wow. this is just this is just one of the things that are, are popping up here that seem to be uh, anomalous to our time period here. The, the way have, I've been watching it, as I have said a number of times on your show, for activity to extend the Big Island further to the east, where the mainland United States, not all the way over, of course, but a little bit further, um, because the Earth's mantle has slowed down its passage over the hot spot down in the core, which wells up and produces the uh, the track of the uh, the Hawaiian islands that are above water and those that are beneath water going up into the direction of the Siberian Peninsula there or to the uh, Kamchatka area. Uh, you know, I, I joke about it, but it, it is happening. I mean, people are looking at uh, investing in offshore property, which is water right now, but it's being built up by the actions of the magma flowing from Kilauea, and it's still doing. I mean, you can see that it's a uh, 40 days it's been erupting, which is uh, quite a long period of time for it to be a lead-up to a bigger one, but uh, it may it may still be bigger. It's just one of uh, several things that are happening on the planet. There's certainly been a number of earthquakes. Uh, I think we get these from time to time, but I still keep looking at the sun and our global weather. Now, of course, the uh, mm, deep state would be calling this, you know, uh, just global warming due to human activity and, and uh, you know, cow gas and whatever. But um, I don't uh, subscribe to that. I think what we're seeing is that the majority of the, of the influences are from the sun itself changing its nuclear chemistry. Uh, again, I've said this many times in your show. Uh, I was told in the late 90s, uh, well, mid to late 90s, that since 1992, uh, we've had two new spectral frequencies coming out of the sun and the ultraviolet range. Now, what that means is, is the chemistry of the sun is changing. And, you know, if you follow, you know, traditional old universe dating methods and whatever, saying that the sun is billions of years old and the earth, same thing, and, uh, then you kind of go yawn and say, well, okay, these changes happen over millennia and over, you know, millions of years. But what I'm thinking is the sun and the universe and the earth, all the things that exist now are very young. Uh, due to the way that we take our radiometric dating to date, you know, things far away and near at hand like the sun. Now, if we are correct, those of us who support a young universe, young earth, young sun theory or hypothesis at this point, if we are correct, then slight changes in the nuclear chemistry of the sun right now should be a worry to us because... Um, Slight changes could indicate that we're going to start a red giant or an expansion stage of the sun, which normally would not occur for a billion years or so in the future on current dating. Uh, and since we are so close to things happening worldwide as far as the tribulation period spoken of in the Bible, one of the, of the major players in that is the activity of the sun, getting hot, throwing off a dust cloud, making the, uh, the moon's light go uh, bright red like blood, uh, burning up a third part of the earth which is uh, struck by something coming from the sun uh, you know uh, an, uh, an emission uh, that happens so quick it happens just as the earth is facing 
some side of it's facing the sun, and before it could move off center, you know, can complete its rotation, whatever this event is, hits the earth and burns the trees, the grass, and boils the oceans on that side. So I think we're seeing early stages of this as far as climate change here. It's hotter. We've had one of the hottest years we've had in a long time here in Colorado and in the southwest. We've still got fires burning in Colorado and Arizona. And they're not over. We're just now starting the summer. It's very early days for this to happen. The fire just Here's popped up in L.A. too, Stan. They're evacuating uh, some of the uh, celebrity areas of, uh, I think, Beverly Hills right now. That's up on the front left-hand side of Drudge. As some fire that they named already has uh, apparently looks to be very dangerous in the area that it's at. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of these uh, wildfires. And I want to let you know, I sent you a document um, from this, something the CIA declassified last week. And I don't know if you've seen it before. When you have time, if you want to give it a read, I read it over the weekend. It's about uh, the possibility of a pole shift and those being responsible for the uh, extinction-level events that had been seen uh, since Adam and Eve and Noah. And it makes many biblical references, but seems to pour it all into a New Age thing. But I thought it was an interesting document worth a read. Uh, but they're they're trying to say that we're due for another pole, pole flip and that this drastic event, uh, you know, we could see it in our lifetimes. But, well, I haven't read the article, but, but I, I do thank you for that. I've got the PDF coming uh, right now. It's being downloaded. And I'll read that later. But you know my theory on that. I think uh, that um, we are going to experience a, a magnetic pole shift for sure. We could see that in the NASA images that they've generated with their supercomputers showing the three north-south poles we have inside the, uh, the core of the planet that are moving around. And we know that the North Pole has been deviating quite rapidly, over twice as fast as the South Pole. Um, but now, for is the pole shift they're talking about in that article magnetic or geophysical? Like, are they talking about the globe surface flipping upside down, or just the magnetic field? Well, no, they're talking about the you know the oceans changing places, and uh, you know uh, basically Antarctica being at the equator. So they're talking about you know it affecting everything, the whole crust. It, did they say why? Just that the just from the uh, uh, what you talked about, you know, the gradual pole uh, moving till it gets to a point where it, it flips, and just part of a, a natural Earth's rebalancing uh, tool, internal tool. But they do get well, into specifics, like how the magma flows and why it reacts the way it does. But it, I didn't really get into that. Uh, and they have they have charts and whatnot. Well, going back to when the solar system was formed, the planets. Uh, spun pretty much vertically around their vertical axis like this as they went around the sun. As the solar system aged and various other things happened like collisions with comets and things like that, various planets tilted on their axis. We had a an impact from maybe four or five large comets or asteroids um, around the time of the Great Flood. Now, we know that before that time, the Earth was uh, pretty much vertical but this impact not only shifted the uh, the earth on its axis 23 and a half degrees it flipped it completely upside down at 23 and a half degrees off, off where it should be so that the sun rose in the west instead of where it rises now in the east now Egyptian records Chinese records have both recorded two episodes of this where we've had the sun uh, rising in the west and setting in the east and then reverting and going back now 
if that's due to asteroid impact, then we had uh, asteroid impacts in these two cases or four cases that flipped the Earth back and forth. If it's magma motions inside the planet, I think the magma motions um, will primarily be due to ancient impacts which disturb the core of the planet. And this this uh, gyrations of these various vortices inside the core of the planet are creating the environment which will flip the magnetic and quite possibly uh, drag along part of the, the Earth's surface with it. Normally, I wouldn't think that to happen in the past, <clears throat> just from a, a, a core magma uh, disorientation, because the, the surface of the Earth, they've recently discovered, it sits on a layer of very soft rock, almost like uh, ball bearings for the, the Earth's mantle, so that you can spin the Earth's mantle with impacts of asteroids and stuff like that without spinning the core of the planet to a different axis. However, as we cool, uh, maybe this is going to become stiffer and it means that we'll be tied into the core and be subject to the core motions more than we have been in the past. It's a very complex issue uh, and data for what's happening down in the core of the planet is not as uh, uh, plentiful as we would hope or as wide to the spectrum. But I'll read that article and see what they say. We can talk about it next week. Yeah, I thought that was a little interesting. And, uh, you know, while we're talking about, I don't want to get too far off the pole shifts, but uh, I want to make sure that we talk about, you know, what NASA announced last week as far as uh, finding the organic compounds for life on Mars. And what they're talking about is methane and and some other carbon-based elements. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how how the uh, the pole shift. Obviously, when we see the what it talks about in the biblical prophecies about the end times, everything is very chaotic and crazy, and the Earth gets burnt by fire, as well as the people, and uh, things are definitely happening. And and uh, I, at least in my mind, the the pole shift, however it happens, whether it's just magnetic or otherwise, is not out of the realm of possibilities. And I don't even really understand the science enough behind it. And I trust you do, Stan. So I'm gonna. Uh, take your word for it, but it's definitely very interesting to see a lot of the uh, changes people are, are reporting from ice melting and on the on the uh, on the poles and whatnot, and citing that as evidence, uh, and as well as what we see with climate change as evidence that the the poles are moving. Yeah, there is evidence of that, and uh, if you if you think about it, with this core you know, this report on the core magma moving around and uh, threatening to uh, flip our, our North and South Poles 90 degrees into equatorial positions, if you think about it, those kind of stresses now occurring may be responsible for, well, more earthquakes, more volcanoes, more sinkholes, causing, uh, you know, uh, rises to drift through the mantle from these pressures of the core flip-flopping inside. That might be the, the main factor we've been seeing that causes all these sinkholes now. All these little things, you know, magnetic fields drifting at the at the uh, airport, so they're having to make new runway alignments to your know, magnetic uh, north and things like this. Well, it just tells you that it's not business as usual. We are about to go through some major changes, and I keep trying to just play a mental game, trying to figure out if the Earth is on the axis it is now, and the sun blows off a layer of charged hot uh, mass as a gas cloud in its uh, you know, progress toward a red giant. If it does that, it's going to hit some side of the planet and, and destroy about a third of it. So where would uh, you boil water and burn grass and trees and, and kill life the least? Um, 
you know, because we've got major players that are mentioned in the uh, Armageddon crisis uh, and uh, in the invasion of Israel. So that part of the world is probably going to be fairly safe. What I'm wondering is, uh, is it going to hit the Pacific, you know, when it's uh, kind of daytime in the Pacific and, and the United States? Is this going to be part of what uh, Dimitri Dudeman was talking about, that America will burn? Uh, are we going to catch the brunt of that, and the Middle East and uh, Europe will survive? So I run this mental game trying to figure out what we can lose and still fulfill the prophecies with the countries that have to exist in the in the tribulation period. What would your what would your speculation be? Because I mean, be, a third of the Earth, pretty specific, it wouldn't be, of course, all water. So Middle East or the Europe <laughs> section, perhaps. I, I think they'll survive. I, I think America and, and the Pacific will suffer the brunt of it. Uh. If, that's, if, if we keep our current axis, but if, as Joe's uh, NASA report says it, we're going to flip 90 degrees, then it may hit Antarctica. Oh. And uh, may, maybe part of Australia and stuff, and, and South America tip, you know, in Argentina, that might catch the brunt of it, and all the countries on the northern hemisphere might survive. So it really depends on if this this pole shift that we're talking about is in progress or completed when the sun blows off this ejector. Got it. Uh, okay. All right. But it, as I say, it's, uh, you don't want to be where it hits anyway. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, preferably not. If you don't mind me interjecting this, um, I, I noticed uh, you've got um, you've got the uh, Garden of Eden collection jewelry, Bloxy Jewelers, custom jeweler, um, new, huh? This is re- relatively new. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, over on the show images page. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, we had planned to to get, uh, which we did do, some. Um, raw uncut rubies and tanzanite and various things that are very rare from the Arush area around the Garden of Eden uh, and bring them back so that people that can't uh, physically or, or financially afford to trip over to the Garden of Eden that we would make some kind of jewelry or you know a dust catcher you can sit on your desk and stuff and say look this came from the real Garden of Eden and uh, so Christina if you look at slides 94 through 96 she just sent me this over the phone today. She's been playing around with um, uh, little glass bottles with a cork, and she actually scooped up about a pound of red earth uh, from the, the Garden of Eden. And so you can actually have part of the dirt that Adam and Eve probably walked on uh, way back in the beginning. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is cool. we got some here at the house, and they've got some over at their place in Pennsylvania. And that Garden of Eden at 94, Slide 95, that's a, a USB drive, which, you know, looks like a fig leaf in the Garden of Eden. There you go. And uh, we've, we've got my lecture on the Garden of Eden, how I discovered it in 2014 on that thing. Uh, what I'm preparing now, it'll take several weeks uh, for me to finish, is a composition of videos and stills that we took over in the Angoro Crater, which is the Garden of Eden, um, to definitely prove that the waters of Eden came from the northwest highlands of the Ngoro Crater. Uh, I've just been going over you know, a lot of the footage last night and today, and I'm just amazed at the things that happened that were uh, serendipitous, uh, coincidental, uh, to lead us up to this area that I wanted to see. Look up there at slide 102 and click it up so you can see the big picture, and you'll see uh, a red line. It's a path. 
and at the top left where it says mystery structure at 10,000 feet altitude. I found that a couple of days, maybe a week before we were to fly over there and, and start investigating the crater, uh, the Garden of Eden in Goro Crater at the bottom part of that uh, plateau. And I, I did a strange thing, uh, you know, I thought, well, I guess I do strange things all the time according to some people, but anyway. Yeah, Holly's laughing, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mapped a thing which you'll see in slide 68 and 69. And just click over to 68 for a minute. And I was going to Google Earth and I thought, well, I know the water came from up in this area and I'm going to find the low point up in that corner where all the rivers came from. And, uh, so I started plotting and you see that square right in the middle. Um, that square is at 9,630 feet. And all inside that square is 9,630 feet altitude. It's a perfect square. So now if you go over to slide 69, uh, oh, don't do that. It's a zoom. Don't do that. It's, it's a movie. Um, anyway, that's a close up. You can see the icon there at slide 69. You can see that, that those squares start to become rectangles moving up to the upper right of the, uh, the picture. You see that there? And if you click on that, you'll get a movie which will zoom, you know, down into it, but that's, that's not necessary at this point for what I want to talk about. Um, so going back up to image 102. <clears throat> okay, so I find this area up there and I think, well, I know the Germans were in, um, Tanzania World War II, did they go up there and build some kind of a bunker, made that square thing, you know, it's about one and a half acres of square thing in the surface that might be underneath. And I thought, well, okay, it's that or some other formation, what could it be? So that was a mystery that I just happened to stumble onto before we left. So we, so we go over to Tanzania, uh, into the Nguro Crater, or, you know, that's where our hotel was on the rim of the Nguro Crater. And um we went to the southern gate, which is up on the rim. You'll see in that image there, uh, see the Sopa Safari Lodge arrow. We'll go straight to the lower right of that where that kind of salty green lake is, uh, salt lake is, and there's a dark green patch. And you can't see any more than just that dark green patch, but that's on the rim, the south rim of the Nguro Crater. And that's one of the two gates you can enter, uh, north or south gate, to get into the crater. And they have guards and, uh, and rangers living there and, uh, you know, facilities for people who need to, you know, take a leak or something while they're, uh, stopping there to get their permits and pay the entry fee. Well, I went into the map shop there and, uh, was, um, looking at what maps they had. I wanted to find out if they knew anything about that area up there, that mystery structure at 10,000 foot up there, uh, in the highlands. And so I was poking around. I asked the young fellow there at the desk. I said, you know, uh, what is this called? He said, what, what, what do you mean, what is this called? I said, well, what is this area called? He said, I don't know. Uh, there's a big crater, the, you know, Omadi crater next to it, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess it's some Maasai village or something up there. I said, well, I brought my computer out and a big map I printed out. I said, look at this. This is what I mapped out up there. There's something unusual up there. I was just wondering what the locals call it. He says, well, I haven't got a clue. And so we poked around the maps and Another couple of guys that uh, worked for the Rangers came walking into the shop, and we got to talking about what I was asking about, just the name of the place, right, and what, it, what if anybody lived there knew what it was. And then another couple of guys, pretty soon we had five or six guys, including the chief ranger, there uh, around this uh, counter in the bookshop or map shop. And I was explaining this and that, and 
what the the chief ranger young fellow he said you know wow he says i i don't know he says uh go, go out there in the yard he talked to one of his other guys and get that that fellow and i don't remember his name an older guy he says he lives up in that area ask him what it is so this old Maasai came in and he says oh and you know yeah we know that area it's uh you know, it's got a lot of water, and uh, we uh, take our cattle and, and, and uh, other animals down there to drink, and we get drinking water and stuff. Yeah. What's it called? Oh, mm, don't know. Uh, you know, you'll have to go up there and find out. So, okay, then the ranger says, well, we don't normally go up to that area. You know, it's not on the tour maps and stuff. Uh, there's not even a road all the way there. We'll have to leave the, the jeeps or the land cruisers at a certain place, and we'll have to trek up through the, the, the jungle and get to it there. Well, the jungle turned out to be pretty much flat paddocks and a bunch of bushes and a few trees, but uh, it was a tough trek. But I wouldn't have been able to get permission for myself and the team to go up there if this young ranger that's the chief ranger hadn't walked in, coincidentally, seen what was there, asked a lot of questions. And we've got video of this, uh, Christina video, every bit of the conversation to, to prove what happened. And he says, oh, we, we've got to go up there and seize it. But first, we've got to go over to... The, the deputy director of the whole conservation area for the Goro Conservation uh, Facility here. So tomorrow morning, he said, I've called already here on the phone. He says, we're all going to meet over there and meet with the director, Paolo, and tell him what you're wanting to do and, and, and see if he'll give you permits for us to get up there, uh, which we did. We all arrived over there and uh, met with this uh, deputy director, actually the director, um, uh, Dr. Mon- Monangi, I think his name is, uh, Freddie Monangi, wasn't there. He was down in Dar Salim doing work with the government on the reports he had to generate for for the government. So we couldn't meet with the director, but we we met with the deputy director who had the authority to, to give us the permit, and he did. He was quite excited about it, and uh, so Christina had uh, made seven uh, coins, uh, sterling silver coins, uh, commemorating the uh, Garden of Eden expedition in 2018. You know, our expedition. And she uh, gave one to Paolo, and um, she'd given one to our, our guide, uh, uh, Ellie, earlier, and to his partner, his uh, brother-in-law, uh, Amos. So we had four of these left, uh, which we did uh, distribute to the, the rangers uh, when we got up to the top. Anyway, we gave him that. He gave us our badges and gave us our permits and gave us permission to uh, film uh, in areas all over the whole plateau, down in the crater, up in the north where we're going, everywhere and use them in videos to promote the Garden of Eden there in Goro. Of course, it, it suited them to do that, but uh, a lot of people have tried to get permits and couldn't before, so the good Lord just arranged it, coincidental meetings with a young fellow and everybody being interested in that mystery uh, shape of the top. So that's what got us the permission and, and the, the two armed uh, rangers to protect us, you know, mainly from wildlife and things like that, but... Uh, they went with us everywhere, and uh, we had a great time. Uh, you know, with very fortunate uh, people that we met to lead us all the way up to that area. Now, I know Doug, you weren't there. Uh, you weren't. Uh, you were kind of under the weather when I was giving the show last week. But uh, if you go to slide, um, uh, oh, a funny thing. Go to slide 86. Now we got up there, and we found uh, an old Maasai woman who came just kind of out of nowhere. It's such a wide-open space, we should have seen her, but she just popped up right on the, the, the slope we were going down. It's a 400-foot drop from the ridge at 10,000 feet down to this lake here, and it's a lake formed by multiple 
uh, fountains of the deep, you know, of springs that, that gush up from inside the mountain from way deep. And they come up from the uh, Serengeti, I think, underneath that, which Serengeti was part of the land of Eden. This was the Garden of Eden where the water came up to form the, the four rivers that flowed from the Garden of Eden. Well, anyway, um, this Maasai woman, uh, she uh, came walking over to us and uh, speaking Ma, you know, Ma, which is Maasai language. It's not uh, uh, Swahili, it's Ma. So the Swahili is now be the, the national language of Tanzania. So our guide and, and our um, two rangers went over to her and said, uh, you know, in Swahili, uh, you know, can you tell us? And then one of the guides said, I, I know enough of Ma to say what she's saying. She says, the name of this place is a question. Um, it's like, is this the earring? And we thought, earring? And you look at the Maasai woman, and on her ears were these silver, very, you know, uh, nice pieces of jewelry that were her earrings. And apparently it's a status symbol within the Maasai to have very nice earrings. And so when they came upon this place, it was valuable. And they said, is this the earring, the, the thing of great value? As best we can figure, that's why they named it that. But they've only been in the area 180 years, and the Datoga tribe, which used to be here, until they had the war with the Maasai, and the Maasai kicked them out of the whole Ngoro Plateau. Well, the Maasai have been here for 3,000 years. We did go down to the Maasai about 100 miles away and try to get information on what they call this, but we, we couldn't get any sense out of the, the old chief, but uh, we tried. So... This Maasai woman tells us, okay, on your walk down through these ruts formed by all the livestock, you're going to have to watch your, your ankles and stuff so you don't break them. It's basically what she was telling us. To get to this place called Kumnana. The, is this the earring, Kumnana? And, uh, as she was telling us this, she was sitting on a, you know, a little rise in the, in the dirt there and uh, talking to us. And we heard this ring, 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 ring. And it was her cell phone ringing under her. Her jacket oh there under her rope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I said this last week. I was telling Joe, I, I could not believe that we were seeing a Maasai, you know, indigenous people while, you know, out in the boonies and her cell phone rings while we're talking to her. Well, she was embarrassed and hid her phone away. <laughs> so I guess it spoiled the illusion, but, um, anyway, uh, she did tell us how to safely walk down through the ruts and it was a hard trek for everyone, but for me, being an old, out-of-shape guy, it was a lot harder than I uh, counted on. But we did get down there, and uh, Jared and Christina said, look, uh, can you baptize us? And I said, well, I, I guess I can. Uh don't have a script with me, but okay, let's do it. So I had Ellie, uh, our guide, who lives in Tanzania, of course, um, as an African uh, Christian, I said to him, you scoop the water out and give it to me, and then you'll from Africa to the Europeans here, give it to me, and I will then take what you've given to us and baptize Christina and Jared, which I did do. And we, we've got that in video for their families and whatever. And we had one of those uh, seven coins, uh, silver coins that were mended, um, and I was told to, by Jared and Christina to throw it out into the middle of the ponds and mark the spot with the, the silver coin for the expedition. So unless the water disappears no one will ever see it but it is now christened with one of the seven coins that were made for the trip um the it's an interesting thing that both guides and uh, sorry the guide and both rangers are all christians in fact tanzania is heavily christian even though there's a muslim presence the the new president um is a, a christian uh and he's 
kind of like Donald Trump uh, of, uh, uh, you know, Tanzania, because uh, I think his first name was John. And he first thing he did two years ago when he got to Tanzania was to fire 1,500 government employees that had been on the take, you know, with paybacks, kickbacks, and whatever, uh, for years during the old administration. So he fired them and got new guys in. And the next thing he did was he said, okay, the taxes being paid here are being paid, heavy burdens are being paid by the people, you know, with their goat herds, with, you know, with their cattle and whatever. They're paying the taxes. The rich pay no taxes. So that's going to stop today. You're going to pay taxes now. So talk about, you know, a popular uh, president of the country. He, the common man think he just kind of walks on water making all these reforms. He has, he hasn't got the same restrictions on him that uh, President Trump does, but they're both trying to do the right thing with the people. And they're both trying to do it for a heavily, a heavy percentage of Christian and Jewish people that live in their countries. Uh, I just found it such an, an incredible trip. Um, uh, it, it's life changing. I can't, I can't even tell Holly adequately how impressive the whole thing was mentally, spiritually, and of course physically. Now that slide I had you look at there uh, with the pond, you'll see X marks a spot. It's a bit of fun that we, uh, yeah, there you go. It's a bit of fun that we took a picture of because uh, we searched for this place on maps and tried to get old records on it just like Indiana Jones would have done. And when we get there, what we find is a natural formation on the hillside there, a big X marking the spot. So you had to chuckle, you know, we followed the X on the map, I guess, and, and got to, you know, uh, this the, the waters of Eden. And uh, slide 84 shows you the incline that, or decline that we had to go down through these, these uh, ruts. You see that grass grows over the ruts, which are kind of, <clears throat> kind of maybe eight inches wide. So you have to put one foot in front of the other. And you have to kind of guess if the grass is covering a hole, uh, you know, in the rut or whatever. So it made it uh, quite clumsy going down with packs and everything. Um, <clears throat> but that's we that's the area we had to go down to get to the the uh, the fountains of the well. In this case, the, the springs that came up. You can see divisions, maybe four, five, six, maybe even seven divisions of uh, springs that are still supplying water to the area. And this is not as much water as would normally come out. You can see where the water spread out before up to the right of the picture. Special place. The natives uh, or the indigenous people say this is the the water of life for the whole plateau. It comes up. We we use it. And, uh, you know, there are springs connected to it underground further uh, kind of back in the picture toward where you're looking back toward you where you're sitting. There's another uh, great spring that uh, people c- come up and get, you know, 20, 20 liter, um, containers and fill them with water and put them on their donkeys. Every day, at least twice a day, they go up to get the water, carry it back down another couple of kilometers to their village where they can then wash their hands and prepare food, whatever from whatever they got on the donkeys backs with these, uh, uh containers. <clears throat> but they, they call this the place where the water of life for the whole plateau comes from. It's the high place. And right now it doesn't gush up like it used to in the old days and make rivers flow. Where we were staying, it would have been a river flowing down. Um, and three going the other direction. It doesn't do that today. But, uh, underground it does supply water all the way down to two rivers that flow into the Garden of Eden, uh, down in the south. 
just a magnificent place, magnificent. You, you know, as you're describing it, I, I just marvel at the fact that um, you're, I, I don't even know how to describe it, verifying the Bible, um, you know, the, the story of creation, uh, my goodness, and, and to be a, to be there, right there, um, that had to be a tremendous feeling. Doug, uh, as I said, it's, it's just hard to explain the feeling because you got to feel it. You got to be there yeah. to do it. And, yeah. And I mean, down in the crater part, uh, where everything was so peaceful, all these twenty-five to thirty thousand large animals that live there, and they never migrate because why migrate? Because they've got all the food and water and protection they need there to help get yeah. along. Heck yeah, man. I, and yeah. Yeah, and uh, if you look at, uh, let's see, did I put that slide up yet? Yeah, slide 93. Uh, that's just after we entered the Garden of Eden. We're down in the flats in the crater, and you can see five sets of boots on the ground. We're walking where Adam and Eve and even God himself walked in the cool of the day. Now, think about that, you know. that's What a feeling. <laughs> I, I... Wow. Wow. And, you know, somebody asked me on the trip, what what percentage do you give this for being the the real Garden of Eden? What do you you think? Chance is 90% sure? I said, no, I'm 100% sure that that water up the top, which gushed up to form the the great rivers and to fill, you know, the the rivers that fed the the garden down here, I said, that was the last proof I needed. You know, uh, everything else I was able to uh, put together from the uh, ancient Hebrew, and we had to use the ancient Hebrew, uh, to uh, find the uh, uh, the cherubs that people say in English, the cherubim, because in the ancient language it wasn't a, an entity, uh, you know, a living entity. It was a large mountain that made fire, uh, Kilimanjaro, and it was to the east, as it is today, of the Garden of Eden, and it protected or preserved the way to Eden. Even King Solomon knew where the Garden of Eden was from reading the old records from Egypt. Moses certainly did uh, four or five hundred years before, but uh, my goodness! Oh, look, just I, I can't say that. We've already started uh, booking people uh, for April of uh, next year to take the trip down. Um, they've emailed me a couple people, and uh, several others want to form a, you know, like a, a group of people to go down together. It, it saves you money to do that, but um, they're trying to talk me into going back down and. And being the MC for the trip, you know, Mr. Know-it-all, but uh, <laughs> I don't know that I feel like doing that again. Uh, just getting too old to traipse around like that, but uh, we'll see. Well, uh, yeah, you're still young. Yeah, that's what Holly tells me too. But um, maybe I'll take my vitamins before I go next time. Hey, that's a stairmaster, you know, or or not a stairmaster. Uh, yeah, I, I've know. got a treadmill with a with an incline and everything, but. Uh, when you're doing it at 10,000 feet altitude, the air is oh, yeah. a little thin. And so, and with packs, and, uh, yeah, you can see in, in slide 87, uh, some of the burrows we encountered there on the trail. Uh, these are water burrows, and, uh, we'll have more shots of them at the, at the other spring on the way back down where people were filling up their buckets. Uh, it, it just, you know, we take it for granted when we turn on the faucet and leave it running while we talk to somebody else in the room or, Brush your teeth or, you know, uh, full flush toilets and things. We take it for granted it's always going to be there. But these people, every day, at least once a day, they have to go 
uh, one to five kilometers, load up a 20-liter jug or several of them, bring them back home for the water the household needs. And there are a number of Christian projects we found out since we got back that are already uh, addressing this problem, um, putting uh, solar panels in some locations, putting man man drill type applications where you can drill a shallow well with just people turning a, an auger. Uh, but people in the United States and Europe are putting money into giving water to Tanzanian villages. Uh, and, and the president of Tanzania is doing this too, but he's only got so much budget to work with. So he is totally pleased with the, the foreigners coming in the, uh, you know, to help his uh, villages. In uh, our driver, you know, our guide, uh, Eli, uh, his full name is Eli Rehema. Uh, and uh, he, um, his village and his brother-in-law's village, uh, Amos, they have to go and and collect the water like that for their village of 1,500 people. Everybody has to go and do it. So he's been trying to figure out a way to get funding to put a well uh, about uh, two kilometers from the the village, which would be closer uh, than it is now, and then to use a two-inch uh, poly pipe and pump it uphill from the the energy from the solar panels into a, a water place there in town that just go over, fill up their buckets, and carry it back home. And that won't make you know, water go out of a spigot in most of the houses at this point, but the long-term plan is to be able to do something like that into small areas of the of the village. And that's just one village. Uh, there's probably 150, 200 other villages, and they all have their own village language, which is why the president of Tanzania has now made... Uh, uh, Swahili, the national language, and making everybody learn it so that they can talk to each other. It's kind of like what Alexander the Great had to do with the, the kingdoms that he conquered in his time. They had to all speak Koine Greek so they could communicate, and he could communicate with his soldiers. Well, this is the same problem here. So we're gonna, we'll, we'll say more about this on the website somewhere when um, I find out which missions uh, are taking the money to help these people so people can donate to them. Um, we're certainly going to make... Uh, Eli Rehema's village, uh, our priority, and uh, raise money for that. Um, he's getting uh, data from the geologists now that about the best place to get the water, which in his case is about 200 feet down. And, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out a way to get it up into the village instead of piping it because, um, as he pointed out, uh, if you don't build a kind of burglar-proof encasement around the well, people steal it. Mm. Uh, you know, and run off with the pump and and, and pump solar panels, whatever. So that's that's what we're doing now is gathering information for his village. Um, and uh, this this solution is solar panels now. But my partner Tim Cardi and I, as you know, have been working on uh, an alternate energy thing for the atmosphere. Once yeah. we get that firing up safely, then we're going to look at putting that in for them because that'll work day and night, pumping water and giving power to the village villages. So things are all coming together. The good Lord has amassed all these things for us to work on, um, including the EMP shield, which we designed to protect our antenna for the power. One, one last thing on, yeah, on Tanzania, Stan. I saw, I think it was last Friday, that the uh, Internet over there was changed, where all non-licensed bloggers were told to shut down their website or or be jailed. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I did. Um, basically, what has happened is the government uh, wants to control uh, the information going through these sites, uh, the blog sites, because of, like, uh, Mozambique, the southern neighbor, and Kenya, the northeastern neighbor. Uh, all these areas have terrorists in them and are trying to overthrow their governments. In fact, in Mozambique last week, they beheaded five people in one village, the terrorists, the, the Islamic terrorists. 
So he wants to be sure that he monitors this, like President Trump would be doing here, monitoring terrorist activities on the Internet. And so to do that, he said, okay, you've got to be serious about wanting to have a blog, and you've got to allow us to monitor it and, and give us the authority to shut you off if you start promoting, you know, terrorist activities. Um, they are going to charge them uh, in U.S. dollars, $900 a year for this right to have that, but understand that $900 a year is about the average wage of a Tanzanian for a year. So wow. he really got to want it to do it. Um, and he's, you know, I, I can't see a problem with that because I do know that there's pressure on the borders to uh, try to cause, a, you know, a revolution in the country uh, against the, the Christians and, and Jews that live there. And strangely enough, Israel is, uh, has been over the last two years making very quiet overtures and treaties with Tanzania for mutual exchange of goods, personnel, and uh, Israel is over there developing some techniques, I think, that will help the Tanzanian villages. So uh, you can see the pressure from the surrounding countries, which are you know, not kind of friendly to Israel, are putting this pressure, and the president of Tanzania is trying to figure out every way he can to protect the country from the, the, the influx of these bad influences. Mm. It, it's you know, if you meet the people there, Tanzania, the, the people, they're different, you know, than people in the rest of Africa and in Europe. They're happy. They might be poor, but they smile and they're happy. You don't have to pay them anything to get a smile out of them. You know, it's, hi, you know, jumbo, you know, <laughs> hello, you know, mambo, hello, friendly, or, you know, uh, and they, it's just smiling faces. I, I can't explain it any other way. We, we just were all struck by the fact that we didn't see a lot of frowning faces. Um, wow. Well, my face occasionally when I was <laughs> grumping about the wrong direction this way or that way. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They I, made an allowance for that. Wow. Well, in, in the, uh, That's fantastic. Kind of switching gears if we can here, Stan. I, I brought this yep. up earlier. I want to get your opinion on this before the show's over. NASA announcing that the, there are organic compounds on Mars that yeah, formed the building go. blocks of life. Here we they go. said they found uh, methane. Uh, I, but my question is, did, did you see the announcement? And is there any? Did they learn anything? Because I, I, I'm pretty sure we've heard of these things before. That Mars had water on it. That since it had water on it, there obviously were uh, similar compounds to what is on Earth. And is not our solar system all made up of the same uh, carbon-based? Yeah, they uh, came from the sun, right? And other stars that, that emit particles that we pick them up over a period of time. Uh, you can have all the ingredients, but you got to form them into uh, a program, you know, a DNA program of something. And so spontaneous generation of life on Mars, they didn't say that, but they're no. saying you got all the building blocks, therefore we expect to see, you know, worms or something have, have been there. But um, the creator of humans, you know, uh, Adamic humans who have the spirit of God, you know, the channel that you connect to God direct, those, that kind of being definitely didn't occur by accident, you know, spontaneous uh, generation of life. So NASA is making a big deal about this because one of the scientists over JPL, probably 15 years ago, I think it was, suggested an experiment, which they put on one of the rovers, to put a cup over an area of dirt on Mars and to measure the amount of methane gas produced over a period of time and the, the uh, trace compounds to see if there were living organisms there. He said, if you're producing methane of this kind with these trace elements, that should indicate that we have you know, organic life, even though it might be little tiny you know, microbes and whatever. 
Well, the first test came back, first results from the, the rover that they did this on, and the established scientific community at NASA looked at him and says, uh, I don't know whether we can say that that says that the building blocks of life was there or could be there. Uh, not enough uh, proof. So another uh, rover mission went, and between the two, when they, they discovered that this guy was absolutely correct, there were huge amounts of methane in an old lake bed there, it did prove that there were living organisms at one time in that lake bed. Now, whether they were viruses or bacteria or whatever is another issue. Um, but from that, they're probably going to try to extrapolate. There are intelligent creatures all over the universe, and I think that would be a false uh, assumption. I really think that the universe was created for this grand uh, replacement uh, that God is making for a third part of the beings that he had created that rebelled with Satan against him. He's got to replace those that third part of the heavenlies with beings that are trustworthy, that in their heart uh, are the policemen. They don't have to worry about, uh, you know, somebody watching them and being sure they do the right thing. They know it because they're connected to God and everything else. But to get these people, he had to give free will to beings like us here on Earth. And he created Adamic man, which is different than, you know, hominid man and those kind of things. The bones, you see, those were not beings tied in to uh, God. Like They communicate spirit-wise with God. And that he could watch and see what their, 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 their thoughts were, you know, whether they were good, or, you know, and, and trustworthy beings. So he's been selecting, you know, by letting us have our free will and giving us a set of rules, he's been selecting beings that he will replace the third part that are being cast out of the heavens of this, you know, this revolution that occurred in the heavens. And that's another issue which we've talked about before, Joe. Um, it, it, it bugs me, you know, uh, heaven is supposed to, you know, you got free will and, and you got everything going for you. Why would anybody want to make war with the creator? They had it so good. And the only thing I can come up with is that they were trying to take over and say, we want to do it our way and not Ego. your way. Ego. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. it's, it's, we see it today. You know, in, yeah. in man. Yeah. And that's, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I certainly would talk about hubris, huh? Wow. Yeah. Anyways, one of those things that crops up when you're out there on the porch with a cup of tea or coffee, uh, thinking about life, death, and universe, and everything, <laughs> uh, and not doing any work. Uh, Holly says, uh, "Have you done your chores for the day?" <laughs> <laughs> Two days. You can tell Holly. Um, uh, you, she, she, she's saying, I, "I'm not that bad." I, I was just teasing, anyway. But well, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, I've been doing more, more, and more of that lately, sitting and contemplating. You know. Mortality and you know. have to. We're we're close, you know. Yeah. Uh, and a number of us, you know, you and I and a few others are getting on a bit, and so it becomes you know a greater priority in our life to think about these things. But for us as believers, it's really uh, an anticipation of you know, is he coming soon? Yeah. Uh, are we going to yeah. put everything to right, and we're going to get new bodies, and and you know, the world's going to be put into harmony. And I look at it as a great. Rebuilding engineering, you know, party for the world, you know, when he comes back and gives us all the technology to, to set things right again. And, uh, then after this, when the earth and the, the universe as we know it is destroyed in a huge fire, a meltdown, and a new earth and a new heaven replace it, after that, we're going to be in a place that you can only just kind of imagine, you know, things will work together perfectly. Hmm. You can, t- 
you'll be able to taste sound and, 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 and feel light and things like this, you know, and look at plants and living things and assess their health and what they need or, you know, what they've got too much of. And we're going to have senses, you know, sensors that we don't have in this body. I, I think mm. about those, you know, it's, I can't, it's I don't even, I, I don't even get, I don't even think that, you know, about heaven or, or even begin to, to try to imagine what it's like. It's just so far out of my own realm of comprehension. But yeah, I mean, everybody has to look at the bigger picture and, and contemplate, you know, the, the, the path they're on. And are they on the path they want to be on? Are they on the right path? And, uh, where that path is taking them? And if it's in tune with, with what, uh, the Lord wants for us in our life. And it's important that we absolutely do that. This is why the Garden of Eden thing was so important to me and to, to Holly and to Jared and Christina. We, if we could prove, which we did do, uh, that the Garden of Eden was and is real and you could go there and see it, then the Bible becomes a history book, not a myth. And the, the message and the urgency of it becomes more apparent to the non-believer. We talk to people, pilots, uh, passengers, uh, just, you know, people along the way that we met, where are you going? And when we tell them, they would look for a minute, some of them would say, you, you mean it's real? And yeah. then they would get excited. And, uh, you know, the, one of the pilots at KLM, he, uh, the airline, he said, I am going to take a safari down there. Now, I, I, I this is incredible because we showed him what information we had already to prove it. And, uh, so seeing that, we know that not everyone will be enthused, you know, and think, oh, wow, I've got to go see the Garden of Eden or it's real and open a Bible for the first time in their life. But there will be some. And for them, this is what is the value of this whole expedition we've done. And this is why, you know, little reminders. We're going to make those little uh, silver coins with seven sides uh, of the expedition. We'll number the, the rest of them. And people can have that on a little chain they can put on their wrist or their neck and, and say to people, uh, I bet you don't know what this odd shape here on, on this, this coin is. It's it's the 3D map of the Garden of Eden, the Nguru Crater, and the, the plateau. And then the conversation starts. And it's a witness tool that uh, grabs people's interest, especially when we couple it with the Atlantis lecture I gave, which was what came after the Garden of Eden, and where the, the descendants of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve, uh, where they met with the fallen ones and all those chimeric uh, creatures were produced and, you know, uh, the reason for the flood uh, was to get rid of those hybrid beings and only Noah and his sons and his wife and their wives were allowed to go on from that period in, in that area because they were they were not polluted by this whole thing. So if people will buy the Garden of Eden uh, if they see that, that Atlantis was real and that they were connected. You know, the pathway from uh, Tanzania was straight down the Great East African Rift into Saudi Arabia, which was, of course, Atlantis. Um, so all these what things kind of hit, hit the unbeliever. You've created a marvel, marvelous legacy in my view, and uh, you've done so much to advance the biblical history and, and knowledge thereof. And thank you for that. It's, what an incredible... Yeah. <laughs> wow. Just, uh, it was incredible just listening to you tonight. And I want to thank you so much for your, for your time and for, wow, for making the trip. Well, thank you guys. And thank you for the, uh, the weekly opportunity to share news with people. And, uh, I'm just kind of an investigator like you. Uh, instead of 
being a private detective, I'm uh, kind of an Indy Jones type detective, but same thing. Believe me, uh, you got a whole lot more than uh, more going than we do uh, with with respect to that. Thank you, Sam. Thank you anyway. Thank right. you guys. God bless you. And thanks Oops. everybody for yeah. listening out there. It was a great show. Hour one news. Hour two, Robert Spencer Jihad Watch, which was a great interview, and then closing it out strong with Stan, which was another great interview. So thanks to everybody out there for your prayers, your support, and for listening. We do appreciate it. Bookmark HagmanReport.com and visit it regularly. We'll be here tomorrow, 7 p.m.